Capital Insurrection Report, Season 3, Episode 22, Planned in Plain Sight. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. In this episode, I'm going to take yet another deep dive into yet another long document that I've read so you don't have to. Although, of course, as always, feel free to do so. Uh, There's a link in the show notes, as always. This time, it is a staff report from the majority of the United States Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, chaired by Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, which is entitled Planned in Plain Sight a review of the intelligence failures in advance of the of January 6, 2021. Now, this was done by the staff of the majority, so it's not a report out of the whole committee. Um, Senator Peter's name is on the title page, but I believe that this is a rather significant document. I've been looking at it for weeks, taking voluminous notes, and so I'm going to plow ahead, despite the fact that there are many other developments that are happening. I wound up, uh, you know, just briefly trying to cover some of that stuff, adding like 21 pages of, of additional notes. So I don't know if I'm going to set a record this time. I'm going to try to, t- to keep this uh, reasonably short. I may wind up, um, unfortunately, giving this document a little bit of short shrift, um, but I think it deserves everyone's attention because this is a continuation of these same themes that we saw in Appendix 1. So, um, last episode, of course, you know, I reviewed Appendix 1 of the final report of the House Committee, the Select Committee, to investigate the January 6th attack. And that should have been, of course, a final accounting of the work of the Blue Team, the team charged with investigating the failures of law enforcement and intelligence in advance of and on the date of January 6, 2021. But, of course, it was not. And I discussed the, the failings of Appendix 1 in the, the last episode. If you didn't listen to that episode, of course you still can, but I'll, I'll summarize it here. Um, Appendix 1 was woefully inadequate. It had every appearance of being edited down from a longer document and was at times schizophrenic, as if it had been written by multiple authors with multiple points of view. And in the end, it seemed to be very much a product of a drive to focus narrowly on Trump, and not to ask too many questions about the security failures on January 6th. But if you actually read the whole thing, it reads as a condemnation of the whole apparatus that was supposed to ensure the security of the electoral certification in Congress on January 6, 2021. They made some changes at the beginning, that the body of the, the text was very dense, lots of citations, but in the end, it is... Um, abbreviated, and doesn't really adequately wind up uh, assigning blame or criticism in a way that I feel really reflects the problems with the intelligence and security failures on January 6th. So this report, planned in plain sight, has far fewer of these shortcomings. Again, it's a majority staff report, so the majority didn't have to negotiate the findings with Liz Janey who's no longer serving, of course, or, or anyone else. They can just go ahead and put out their findings. It's three times longer than Appendix 1, so over 100 pages versus 30. And so, of course, there's more detail. 
but is also less equivocal than Appendix 1 in its findings. Like the final committee report, it is laboriously documented with over 500 footnotes, but most of these sources are going to be familiar to people who have read the final report and reviewed the transcripts. There are a lot of citations from the House Select Committee report, also transcripts, including excerpts that were not appearing in the final report, and citations from a variety of other products, uh, including some interviews that um, it appears that the committee conducted on their own. Um, unfortunately, there's also uh, documents that uh, appear in the committee in citation, but which are not publicly available, which I, I think is, is a bit of a weakness. I would like to have had them put everything out there. Uh, of course, the January 6th committee, we know, did some of that. They didn't do all of it. There are people we know testified, and we don't have the transcripts, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, same thing happens here, except they didn't, they just did, there's no full accounting of those documents. Maybe that's coming. Um, I will continue to look for it. So I have far too many notes for this episode, and again, it's probably going to be a, a long one. But to summarize, um, this report, uh, again, planned in plain sight, is much better than Appendix 1, um, but it does have some weaknesses. So I'll just go down these quickly. Um, committee majority staff do a very good job summarizing the failures by DHS and FBI in the run-up to January 6th. That is their focus. Uh, DHS, INA, Intelligence and Analysis, their open source intelligence collecting, and also the FBI are the two primary organizations who are charged with uh, looking at open source intelligence and trying to protect uh, the government from things like a uh, massive political act of violence like we saw on January 6th. And they did not do that adequately as the report laboriously documents in detail. And yet, nonetheless, the report itself kind of punts at the end. It doesn't adequately assign blame to actual persons for any of these problems. Um, most notably, uh, Chad Wolf at DHS and Christopher Ray at the FBI really get off with no criticism of any kind in a report that is, as we will see, oftentimes very frank in assessing the failures of these agencies. So they don't look at the top level, right? They don't look at the two Trump appointees who are ultimately responsible. And I believe that that is a failing. Now, I know there are a lot of people who really support Christopher Wray, um, but in the end, you know, you have to say the buck stops somewhere. And if there are failures at the FBI, you should at least have some acknowledgement of the role of the director, similarly at DHS. But at least, you know, in the DHS, Wolf wound up testifying before the, the House Select Committee. Ray did, didn't at all. So that is a weakness in general with regard to accountability at the FBI. Also, the report continues to accept the narrative that the excesses of the summer of 2020 laid the groundwork for a stood-down posture of the federal government on January 6th. Once again, it's never acknowledged that the valence here is consistent. It is consistent that law enforcement and intelligence were harsh and failed to respect the civil liberties when they were directed at opponents of Trump and the left in general. But they were also completely hands-off when it came to Trumpists, even though Trumpist political violence was already well known. All right, there was, there's no Biden bomber, uh, but there is, of course, a MAGA bomber, for example, 
This was already something that was well known in the summer of 2020, and yet they were focused exclusively on BLM and Antifa, and even as we have seen, of course, with Shane Lamond working with the Proud Boys. Um, it's as though it's, it's kind of a thought crime to suggest that this is, you know, this was a thing. And the fact that they used the excesses of the summer of 2020, you know, where they brought in the BOP sort teams uh, to act as crowd control in a, you know, basically totally beyond the remit of BOP employees. And yet, you know, a lot of these things just don't even get mentioned anywhere um, is highly problematic in my view. And also, again, um, you don't get to say that because we violated the civil liberties of people on the left, um, that somehow justifies completely being hands-off uh, against the Trumpists. Um, again, the valence is consistent. It is consistent. To, there's a logical consistency to uh, an agency headed up by Trump, a Trump appointee that is extremely harsh to Trump's enemies and uh, completely hands-off when it comes to Trump's friends. So the committee, uh, the report addresses a little bit of that. I would have liked to have seen them go a, quite a bit farther. Um, although again, it does a better job in this regard than Appendix 1. So it's a good product for most of its length, but it kind of just shrugs at the end, right? This is a white hot report. I mean, despite its flaws, there's real fire in here at times. But again, it's, it's weak at the end, uh, as if they all got fired up and just ran out of steam. For example, um, these kinds of reports, and I've read so many of them over the years, uh, you know, the, the, Janu the January 6th report, the 9-11 report, um, both of the reports on the financial crisis in 2008, usually you have recommendations. Usually you're going to have um, corrective actions, as they, they like to call them. Uh, in the world of the OIG uh, at in the executive branch. Here, there's nothing. There are a lot of obvious recommendations that sort of scream out at you when the re you read the thing, but at the end of the report, where they are, they really ought to go, there are none. So no corrective actions of any kind. They just totally punt. And particularly given how good this report is in some places, it just seems uh, disappointing that they just abdicate the responsibility to make even the most cursory attempt at improving. So, I mean, the conclusion is just two and a half pages long. And here are the last two sentences. Quote, Our nation is still reckoning with the fallout from January 6th, but what is clear is the need for re-evaluation of the federal government's domestic intelligence collection, analysis, and dissemination processes. This committee will continue to conduct oversight of FBI and INA to ensure they address these identified failures and make necessary reforms. Page 105. But again, you want them to make necessary reforms. Why don't you generate a list of necessary reforms, right? So, I mean, clearly this is hinting at they're still working on it, and maybe at some point in the future they will offer some necessary reforms. But if you are reading this report with an eye to finding any of that, you're not going to. So that's my executive summary, uh, but there's still a lot more in my notes that I will go over in the body of the podcast. Uh, as usual, I'm going to follow a, a kind of a format where I discuss the, the developments and then um, the broader cases before 
doing a bit of a deeper dive on what's happening with regard to uh, this report. Now, this is a day, by the way, where, where we might expect some breaking news coming out of uh, D.C. So if I'm aware of that while I'm recording, I will try to uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, we'll have to do the latest January 6th news. I've got a couple of inmates, uh, defendants I want to talk about. Um, but first, as always, let's go over the numbers. There have been a total of 1,029 individuals charged, an increase of 13 since the last tally. There have been a total of 437 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. Three dismissals, an increase of one, um, but not really. It's still two. Talk about that in a moment. One acquittal, holding steady. Uh, 715 convictions, uh, an increase of seven since the last tally. And 500 sentencings, an increase of six since the last tally. Now, actually, I, I, I misspoke. I already talked about the dismissal last time. I went and changed the numbers, um, but didn't actually edit out my uh, editorial comment there. Um, there have been a whole slew of new AFO arrests, including Philip Crawford of Georgia, uh, hashtag ground round guy, Luke Hoffman of Kentucky, uh, hashtag white line gloves, and Terry Allen of Pennsylvania, hashtag imperial MAGA march. Now, also newsworthy, uh, we have seen uh, the acquittal of James Beeks, a Broadway star who portrayed Judas on stage and was a Judas to democracy offstage on January 6th. So acquittals are not holding steady. Acquittals are now at two. Um, and this is the first felony acquittal. Now, Beeks joins a previous January 6th defendant, Matthew Martin of Santa Fe, but again, their cases are rather different. Martin had Trevor McFadden, a Trump appointee who has a reputation for leniency, uh, particularly for misdemeanor defendants, uh, which Martin was, having been charged with all four counts that the misdemeanor insiders typically get. Beeks, in contrast, was acquitted in a bench trial before Judge Amit Mehta, the judge who has handed down the longest sentence in the January 6th cases to date, the 18 years he gave to Elmer Stewart Rhodes. And so Beeks is the first felony defendant to win a full acquittal at trial. And this is all the more unusual because Beeks was acting pro se, although he did have standby counsel uh, and he, he relied on this. Uh, notably, uh, as Beeks left the, the, count, the courthouse with his uh, counsel after the verdict, um, his attorney thanked Beeks for letting him step up and play a bigger role. And by the way, that's that's the way it sometimes goes in these pro se cases, even in sovereignties and cases which Beeks employed some of that kind of strategy. Um, they all, you know, they, they will have a standby counsel, and sometimes um, there's animosity between the defendant and standby counsel. But sometimes, in fact, as I think Beeks did. Uh, they realize, oh, wait, I am utterly unqualified to do this. My attorney has given me good advice. Maybe I should let the actual lawyer do the actual lawyering. And that appears to have been the case in this instance. So, yeah. Um, what happened here? Well, they both kind of weirdly undercharged and overcharged Beeks. Now, they charged him with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and civil disorder. And yet, Beeks went out the Capitol, inside the Capitol. He was uh, part of one of those Oath Keeper stacks. But they didn't charge him 
with those four misdemeanor offenses that all the insiders catch. Now, this, I believe, was hubris on the part of the government. They, I believe, think that the video evidence of him going into the Capitol as part of a stack with Oath Keepers ought to have been enough to uh, convict him of the conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding charge, um, and they dropped those uh, four misdemeanor counts. Again, not sure why they do that. It's not typical of how the government usually proceeds. They charge everything, and they try to, to try, you know, get convictions on every count that they can get convictions. So, I mean, the problem with them in this regard is that there was not the same kind of slam-dunk evidence demonstrating that uh, Beeks was really actually part of the conspiracy as there was in the other Oath Keeper cases. They didn't have all these, you know, voluminous records of these chats where these uh, various um, insurrectionist plans and sympathies were discussed as they did in the uh, more important or other Oath Keeper cases. He was someone who joined very lately, got kind of radicalized, um, and, you know, again, you know, was not a, a long-standing Oath Keeper, uh, and, which, by the way, I mean, it's, it's true of some of the other defendants as well, right? Some of them, uh, you think of Jess Watkins, uh, you know, had, had joined the Oath Keepers relatively recently, but she was also very much a, a, an active participant in a way that it beaks simply was not. I mean, he really was kind of a, a foot soldier, recruited relatively recently, and pretty much appears to have just gone along with the group in any event. So they did have evidence, of course, again, showing Beeks bringing up the rear in one of the stacks and entered the Capitol. But uh, again, he wasn't charged with going inside the Capitol. So that's kind of a big problem. They, the case against for conspiracy was kind of weak, and they ought to have recognized that, um, versus the case for uh, going inside the Capitol. That was very strong, and yet they didn't charge that at all. So, uh, yeah, just genuinely unusual in that the government dismissed the misdemeanor counts. It's not how prosecutors work in general. It's not how they work in January 6th cases. The government brings the charges that they think they can win. Also, this case itself was kind of a placeholder case. I will link to the court listener page. Um, but this is one of the earliest um, Oathkeeper conspiracy cases, and uh, neither Beeks nor Crowell were in the original set of indictments. Um, that's right, he, his, his co-defendant in this uh, was Donovan Crowell. So Beeks doesn't get added to this case until the sixth superseding indictment in December of 2021. The first named defendant was Kenneth Harrelson, who was split off into another case. So you really need a flowchart to understand which Oath Keepers wound up in which case. And many of the defendants who would ultimately go on to be convicted in the seditious conspiracy case began in this case, which ultimately winds up going to trial with just uh, Beeks and Crowell. So in any event, government dismissed the most easily provable charges against Beeks in favor of the ones for which they had the least evidence. And that's just kind of, again, the, the, that's the reason for the acquittal here. So, in a uh, space that Beeks hosted on Twitter um, on Sunday night, Beeks said, quote, I came to D.C. to help others, and that turned into a two-year nightmare. 
Now that it is done, I want to set up a Twitter Spaces to share my story around January 6th and Q&A for other January 6ers to get ideas on how to win this thing. Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, comment yes below if you can attend. End quote. So, although Beeks claims that January 6th was a nightmare for him and he wouldn't do it again, it's entirely possible that Beeks is setting himself up to become yet another MAGA grifter. Uh, he claims that he is fundamentally an apolitical person, but his Twitter feed is solidly comprised of January 6th apologist material, so I think that uh, Mr. Beeks is well on his way. Now, I would also be very much remiss if I didn't mention another January 6th defendant who has been arrested since the last episode. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to spend a, a bit of time talking about this individual, Taylor Taranto. Now, this is a long saga, uh, one with which many listeners will be familiar, but I will give an abbreviated version, and even the abbreviated version is quite long, for those who are not yet acquainted with this distressing story. So, Taranto is 37 from Seattle, Washington, and an insider who is assigned the hashtag AstroNot by online open source intelligence sleuths due to his wearing a version of a MAGA hat that read, Make Space Great Again, which I suppose isn't actually a MAGA hat, but an MSGA hat. Um, I've had occasion to mention one incident in which he was involved before in the episode in which I profiled David Walls Kaufman, a Capitol Hill area chiropractor. Now, Walls Kaufman had been identified in August of 2021 and was arrested in June of 2022. Taranto was also identified in August 2021. Um, yeah, so yeah, almost three years, right? Because he just got arrested. So, so yeah. Um, now, both Walls Kaufman and Taranto were identified as suspects in an assault in the Capitol on January 6th of Officer Jeffrey Smith. Although neither has been charged with that assault, and is now presumed by many that this was really nothing more than a scuffle. The problem is that um, Officer Smith, of course, killed himself on January 15th, 2021, and both Walls Kaufman and Taranto are being sued by Smith's widow, Aaron Smith, all of which was reported in August of 2021 in an article on HuffPost by Ryan J. Riley, link in the show notes. Walls Kaufman was sentenced to two months in prison in June of this year and, of course, was not charged with AFO. So it appears the government did not feel that uh, they could make that case. And in a very rare, uh, what some might consider to be an error, um, there, you know, I won't go into who did what, when, where, and how, but it, it would appear that there were... So there was a, a bit of a rush to judgment in, in this instance by certain parties. I'll just leave it at, at that. In any event, um, neither Walls Kaufman nor Taranto were charged with assault on Officer Smith. The civil suit is going forward, and we will see what happens. My condolences to uh, Aaron Smith, of course. Um, it's speculated that at some point on January 6th, Officer Smith did suffer a head injury, and we know that head injuries, especially uh, TBIs, serious ones, uh, are very strongly associated with um, suicidality. 
and it's a very serious issue. And unfortunately, it would appear, I believe at this point, that the actual person, whoever it was, who may have inflicted a head injury on Officer Smith, um, has yet to be held accountable by the legal system. So as far as we know, Taylor Taranto wasn't charged at all until this June. Um, go over a little bit on what happened on January 6th. Taranto brought what has been described as a weaponized cane to January 6th. And what looks to be a solid hunk of metal with a sharpened point, um, you know, basically it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cane. And if you imagine a cane is like, I don't know, like a candy cane, right? The, the, the end of the hook part has a, a sharpened point on it and some kind of weird foot at the bottom. I don't know what, what that is supposed to be for. Um, he's also carrying what is described as a tactical pin, which, of course, I didn't know was such a thing. But, you know, yeah, uh, of course, everything is, is tactical with these people, right? You know, uh, you can um, sell something for a 10 times more markup if you call it tactical, and paint it black. Uh, thanks to Ubel Cats for actually spotting that uh, that that detail. Um, Taranto appears to have had on his person on January 6th, and I, I, I'm probably spending a little much time on it, but it's just absurd. I thought you might uh, be interested. He had a CRKT brand tactical pen, which retails on Amazon for $55. And it's basically a piece of metal that you can stab people with that also happens to be a, a ballpoint. Here is the ad copy for the CRKT brand tactical pen. Quote, To everyone else, they're stylish writing implements designed with all the fine qualities you would expect in a nice pen. But to you, they're more than that. Former Army officer and martial arts instructor James Williams applied his design expertise to the Williams Tactical Pen. For those of you familiar with the Hisatsu and Hisu, this new James Williams design is sure to be a welcome addition to your defensive-edged tools. A clean, futuristic interpretation of one of mankind's basic tools, the Tactical Pen is a high-tech writing instrument that can be used as a self-defense enforcer if need be. Made from precision-machined aluminum and a hard-coat color anodized, they offer long-lasting durability and toughness. Available in non-reflective, tactical black finish, the tapered body improves grip while adding a contemporary look. With some basic instruction or knowledge, one can readily use the pins against an assailant or attacker to inflict notice, pain, or injury, thwarting a potentially, otherwise potentially, defenseless act. And they're just plain great writing implements as well. Right. So, obviously, you can stab someone with a regular pin just as well as with this thing. Um, I don't know how much... Like, they're talking about, like, oh, you need, like, defense training. It's like, it's a pointy thing that you stab people with. Okay, great, right. Um, you know, yeah, it's supposedly made from aircraft-grade aluminum. It's eight inches long. Uh, that's the same size, by the way, as an ATD nail. And so an ATD nail would probably work even better for stabbing, and it's like a buck or two, you know? Um, but again, I mean, this is the kind of person that Taylor Taranto is. You know, you pay $55 or something that, that you could really just, you know, just like a sharp piece of metal that's 
you know, a buck or two, right? I mean, you, you can get, like, actual knives, whatever. Anyway, fast forward to June of 2023. Taranto has long since been identified by sedition hunters who uh, sent all this information along to the FBI. And he's had news stories about him, and there's been a civil case. Ryan J. Ryan J. Riley posted an alert advising people to follow his hashtag in August of 2021, knowing that Taranto was in the process of being identified. In the spring of 2023, Taranto began to hang out on Freedom Corner, uh, the site of ongoing protests by Trumpists outside the D.C. jail, sort of sandwiched in between the D.C. jail uh, and uh, the Congressional Cemetery. So... All kinds of problems there. That's a whole other rabbit hole when you talk about Freedom Corner. Um, but, you know, it is a site for nuts who have rubber butts. Uh, multiple people uh, sent information to the government, to police, telling them where Taranto could be found. And Taranto actually appeared at the sentencing of David Walls Kaufman on June 14th. And Ryan J. Riley posted that he identified Taranto in the, the courtroom on Twitter and includes an altercation between Taranto and a U.S. Marshal in which uh, Taranto uh, audibly identified himself in the courtroom. And yet nothing happened. Right, June 14th, he's in the courtroom. Um, you know, this guy who, here's his co-defendant. He's a known insider. Um, you know, the, the very same journalist who actually has written articles about him uh, talking about the identification and the suit um, from uh, uh, what a Officer Smith's widow, Aaron Smith, um, happens to be in the courtroom. And yeah, so nothing happens. There we are. So we've got a situation where he's known to be, you know, he's, he's allowed to be in federal court and still at this point not charged. Now, the problem with this arguably, of course, is that Taranto posed a danger to the community. And yet there he was every day outside the D.C. jail uh, on live streams. And law enforcement apparently, although there's a question mark there, didn't do anything about it. Even when people sent information alerting them to the fact that there was an identified insider in D.C., law enforcement apparently didn't do anything about it. And so a lot of people were mad about this, understandably so. Um, they never put Taranto on any wanted list. Now, there's some speculation that Taranto had been charged uh, prior to this, and this is somehow unsealed or something. I don't think that's the case. Um, I just think that he was allowed, maybe he slipped through the cracks somehow. That's one possibility. Um, but he's particularly high profile, even though he, at that point, hadn't been, you know, um, charged. <coughs> Pretty high profile guy, and yet, and, and someone who's, you know, genuinely unhinged. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and yet he's allowed to act with apparent impunity in public live streaming without any fear of legal repercussions. So in the press, we've seen a lot of people pat the DOJ on the back for prioritizing violent offenders rather than going after the ringleaders. And it has been argued that this has a deterrent effect, right? The immediate thing that we need to do is make sure that nothing like this happens in the inauguration, or we need to clamp down on this political violence. And actually, I, I think that there's some evidence to suggest that some of that has occurred, although lately I've, I've worried, um, especially for some reason, that the whole issue with the, the tapes and going over um, to Tucker 
uh, appears to have been an inflection point where now everyone's just, they're all open about everything, uh, which is absolutely bizarre because the government is still bringing cases by digress. Taylor Taranto's case uh, kind of shows the opposite. This guy wasn't deterred by anything, and that should have been a red flag to the government. So let's talk about what it took for the government to finally arrest him. Uh, again, there's a link to the court listener page in the show notes. So a uh, listener sent me a link to uh, Taranto's Telegram account. Uh, thank you. You saved me some a uh, little bit of work there. Um, and it's filled with some very alarming material. And sedition hunters did take steps to inform the government of the kinds of material that Taranto was posting on Telegram. I went through it. Uh, he has 28 Telegram subscribers and has spent far too much time putting up content for his 28 subscribers. Here's a quick sampling. Uh, not, uh, yeah, of the kinds of things. I'm not even going to spend too much time on this. Uh, for example, he posted a comment saying, quote, what are your thoughts on the Holocaust? And then he showed a series of edited videos from the actor Jonathan Frakes, better known, of course, as Commander Riker from the Star Trek The Next Generation series. And Jonathan Frakes is saying, it never happened. It's a fake. It's a fiction. It's an urban legend. This meme, by the way, will be familiar to anyone who's been on the internet. Um, it's kind of an old meme, but he's using it here. These are all edited from uh, Frakes' TV series, Beyond Belief, which ran from 1997 to 2002 and was at least partially dedicated to debunking myths. Uh, misapplied here, right? I'm sure Frakes does not endorse this. Um, but this is just basic Holocaust denial, right? And so... This is a meme that's applied widely to a variety of subjects. Um, but you just go through his telegram, and for the most part, it's just boring. It's the most predictable collection of anti-Semitic, homophobic, transphobic, and fascist memes you can find anywhere. And he just, he doesn't even comment on them. He just, he just posts a piece of fascist garbage, not, not even a comment, and then just later on, more fascist garbage. It's actually unusual. Most of the posts don't even have anything where he actually says anything. No original thoughts. Uh, just spends his time reposting things from the far right web. And when he does have something to say, it's usually something like this. Quote, I believe they are activating the vaxxed in waves. Once activated, the nanographene oxide package, along with the spike proteins, jump person to person. If you have people close to you who have been activated, they can infect you and make you sick. This happened to my ex. It is happening in waves. The way they avoid discovery. To activate it, they have only to shoot a scalar beam weapon at the vax, or put them in a 5G or above atmosphere. End quote. Okay, 5G atmosphere? I, I, that's a lot of Gs, right? I mean, anyway. Uh, human body, you know, 10 Gs. Yeah. I know he's, he's talking about, like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Those are all certainly words, right? Um, but that's the way his uh, messed up little brain works. He also posted links to anti-vax sites with the comment, kill them all, apparently referring to vaccinated people. So I know what part of what I like to do here is read long documents so you don't have to, but I have to confess that I didn't get to the bottom of Taylor Taranto's telegram. Every time I would scroll, there's just more. There's just more nonsense. And it's basically just him reposting some content that he's been told to believe by people who actually control his brain. 
uh, for someone who believes in, in like mind control or whatever, he's fully mind controlled. And he provides a serious argument for requiring some kind of test of intellectual functioning for allowing people to access the internet. His telegram is basically just the most brain-dead parts of the internet winnowed down into a very concentrated distillation. There's no far-right conspiracy in which he doesn't believe, whether it be QAnon, anti-vax stuff, anti-Semitic stuff, etc. All right. So you have this insider who's known to carry weapons, who's living in his van in D.C., and publicly supporting people who attempted to disrupt, obstruct the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. And there's also this issue of the civil suit against Taranto and David Walls Kaufman. Um, so, yeah. There have been questions about all that, but he's still, as of mid-June, sort of operating openly. And, you know, again, these questions are why, right? I mean, it could be that the FBI felt that it had gotten bad information once regarding Taranto and the assault on Officer Smith, and so they were reluctant to act on further tips regarding this particular suspect. And, of course, a lot of people in the sedition hunting community were rather frustrated that he had openly returned to the scene of the crime and was cavorting with his insurrectionist comrades on Freedom Corner. In any event, um, you know, he, did he try to disguise himself? I mean, on January 6th, he had a scraggly beard and long hair, uh, but he got a haircut and a shave sometime between January 6th and his return to D.C. But certainly, you know, that's not going to stump the government, right? I mean, you can change your hairstyle and still get arrested. In any event, all this, there's a warrant filed for Taranto's arrest on June 29th, 2023. And you can piece together that the government actually did have information regarding Taranto's activities in this time frame. Reading from the warrant, quote, statement of facts, rather. On June 13th, 2023, during Wohl's Kaufman's sentencing, which took place in the United States District Court, the United States Marshal Service observed a male with short-cut hair, beard, and glasses, later identified as Taranto using his phone. Marshals ordered Taranto to stop and proceeded to escort Taranto out of the courtroom. A member of the news media, present in the courtroom for the sentencing, overheard Taranto identify himself to the U.S. Marshals as Taylor Taranto. And again, of course, as I mentioned, the member of the media was Ryan J. Riley. Link again to the article in the show notes. Quote, on or about June 17th, 2023, a video entitled, quote, exclusive Taylor Tranto talks about being on the scene when Ashley Babbitt got shot was publicly posted online. The video is an interview between a male identified as Taranto and another individual. Taranto is interviewed on camera with his name displayed in the corner of the screen from page eight of his statement of facts. The agent then basically just adds that this individual is definitely Taranto and notes that Taranto essentially doxes himself during this online interview. Quote, Taranto and the host of the interview then review video footage from January 6th together. The video footage pans across a crowd of people, revealing Taranto himself standing near the speaker's lobby in the Capitol building. While watching the video, Taranto makes several comments identifying himself in the video footage, including saying, that's me screaming, and this is me, apparent page nine. So the strong implication in the statement of facts seems to be that Taranto's appearance at Walls Kaufman's sentencing and this online video were somehow the final bits of evidence that may have led to 
his arrest. Another possibility, although it's not mentioned in the charging documents, is that Taranto had taken an interest in area public schools and had been posting videos regarding his interest in area public schools, mitigating on June 18th. Um, this was something that they did bring up at his uh, custody hearing, his bail hearing. In one, Taranto appeared to be in his car, taking video of students being evacuated from a D.C. school, in which he comments that the evacuation is probably because there is, quote, a violent white supremacist in the area, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's talking about himself. So, again, there's it's he's escalating. He's hanging out with his fellow zealots, and they are uh, got this mutually reinforcing folia du uh, self-radicalization thing going on. Just raises questions, right? I mean, is there more? Is there more that the government uh, can't say, you know, or more specifically that they don't have to say, you know? I mean, it raises questions. Why not shut down Freedom Corner? And to my mind, it's pretty apparent that it's an op that the insurrectionists are running on themselves. It is a potential goldmine for the government, particularly since these people are continuously live-streaming their own activities. How many other January 6th defendants are showing up at, for these uh, Freedom Corner events, right? It's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but, of course, there's also the case of Tommy Tatum, hashtag Potatum, uh, at Ray Epps Lawyer on Twitter. Tatum was charged uh, and arrested in May, not for his conduct on January 6th, which is documented on video, but for assaulting a counter-protester in D.C. on Freedom Corner. Other January 6th defendants, of course, have appeared there as well, uh, you know, and, of course, family members, uh, Nicole Reppitt, for example, and... Um, one wonders whether or not there have been people who have not been publicly identified who have been appearing uh, there who perhaps, you know, are in a similar situation to Toronto returning to the scene of the crime. So these people have provided the government with a rather handy way of keeping tabs on them, um, you know, which again, all this live streaming, they, they learned nothing from January 6th. All this video that was used in court cases, you know, there's body-worn cameras, there's surveillance footage, but a huge amount of it, um, especially the stuff that was used by open source intelligence people, was video that people produced themselves and posted, you know, of the crimes being committed on January 6th. So they're running an op on themselves. Why would the government shut it down? Um, although, again, arguably, they pose a danger of to the community. They're radicalizing one another. All these things need to be weighed, and I think on balance... They probably should shut it down. I can think of no other federal prison facility in the country where this kind of thing would have been allowed to be go on, going on for this long. There's also this curious coincidence. It just so happens that Taranto was arrested on June 29th, and they had the statement of facts ready to go on June 29th. Um, and yet, what was happening on June 29th? Well, also on June 29th, it just so happened that that morning, Taranto began by announcing online that he would be checking out President Obama's house in D.C. because he, Trump had put Obama's address online. And so Taranto, bored in D.C., nothing better to do, apparently, than to go to the former president's house. And in this uh, video statement before he deleted it, he said that he would, quote, have them surrounded. So there's your timeline, right? Trump posts Obama's address to Taranto posts that he will visit that address, writing 
quote, we got these losers surrounded, see you in hell, Podestas and Obamas, and then he deletes it. And three, Taranto is arrested while in President Obama's neighborhood. So all these things, and it's escalating to Taranto visiting the former president in an act of stochastic terrorism after Donald Trump posts the former president's address online. So after my getting all mad at uh, the government for allowing Taranto to hang out in Freedom Corner for two months and doing nothing, the implication here is that Taranto was probably being watched quite closely by someone. Who knows? I mean, did a member of the open source intelligence community see Taranto's post implicitly threatening President Obama? And did that finally spur the government into action on the morning of June 29th? Or was the government already monitoring his accounts in order to act when they thought it was necessary? Now, a lot of people did tip off the government to monitor, you know, to with regard to Taranto's activities. So that might have prompted them to start looking at this stuff, uh, you know, on their own. Hard to know. I mean, it's just, it's not a coincidence, right? His January 6th warrant is dated the same date that he happens to show up at President Obama's neighborhood. Um, it's 10 pages long. And that indicates that this was already ready to go. And it was filed when the government had information that Taranto was going to commit an additional crime. Taranto could have been charged with four relatively minor counts that are included. Those are the insider counts that are included against all the parading defendants. And that's what he was arrested for. But again, you know, that was because the government decided there's no irrefutable evidence of an assault against Officer Smith or anyone else. But as it stands, in addition to these relatively minor counts that Taranto uh, would have been accused of, he also now faces two felony counts of carrying a pistol without a license and possession of a large capacity magazine, as he possessed two firearms and over 400 rounds of ammunition in the van in which he lives. So this could be another reason why they decided to pick him up. It could be, maybe, they had a tip that Taranto was carrying weapons in the van in which he is living. So, you know, who knows? I mean, do they have a mole on Freedom Corner? Well, that would be that would be atypical, right? All the evidence points to law enforcement not being quite that on it, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, that, that and that's the thing they never say, right? It's like, hey, guys, you claim that everyone at January 6th was an FBI agent. What about Freedom Corner? Hmm? Who told him Taranto had a gun? Is it just anyway? But it's an interesting possibility. One I don't I don't take too seriously. Um, but thank you for your service, everyone involved in the arrest of Taylor Taranto, who now instead of getting like you know maybe two months like Wallace Kaufman did, is looking at uh, a far more serious felony conviction. You know maybe five years, something like that. Right? You show up at with a president's uh, at a president's neighborhood with some guns and you make threats against them. That actually they they get serious about that, right? Like Cesar Sayoc, the MAGA bomber, he got twenty years. So Taranto went from being a parading defendant to someone who is potentially threatening the life of a president. Uh, although, again, that isn't included in this current indictment. They might want to supersede this. So, yeah. And uh, on July 12th, Taranto was ordered to be held in pretrial detention. So all these judge on Freedom Corner, they are going to be short one member. So 
let's move on now to Trump developments, although there will be some overlap with other January 6th defendants. Um, it's always hard to know when an episode is actually done. There's so many developing stories, it's almost uh, a disincentive to actually put an episode out because it can very quickly be superseded by some of these developments and superseding indictments, etc. and so forth. So let's catch up briefly uh, in the developments in the Trump series of cases. Although, again, um, I know I'm not going, I'm going to leave out some of these, some things that have definitely happened uh, just for the sake of brevity and also because there are, there's just been so many things that have happened. Now, according to Donald Trump, he got a target letter on Sunday, July 17th. And this really seems to be bothered him because he golfs very, very piously. Trump was invited to testify before a D.C. grand jury, this time for the January 6th case. In other words, the case involving the obstruction of the certification of the electoral votes on January 6th, 2021. This is the development I have most anxiously been awaiting, as I'm sure many of the listeners have. And, of course, there are a lot of questions. Trump, of course, didn't take the opportunity to testify before the grand jury on Thursday, despite Jack Smith's generous invitation. You might think that a man who's running for president would welcome the opportunity to clear his name, but no, he just preferred to whine about it on social media. On Thursday, one William Russell testified before the grand jury. Russell's an employee of the Trump campaign who spent all day on January 6th with Trump. Now, we don't have a committee transcript for Russell, but of course that doesn't mean he didn't testify there either. Now, it's a strange development that in this January 6th grand jury case, Judge Trevor McFadden got mad because Trump lawyer Stanley Woodward was late for his appearance in the verdict of Federico Klein. This is very strange, but also serendipitous overlap between the case against Trump and the case against Capitol AFO attackers. Now, I know that I've mentioned Klein before. Klein is a Trump appointee who is in charge of the Brazil desk at the Trump State Department. And Klein's family has links to the Argentine junta who ruled through terror in the uh, 1970s and early 1980s, I believe from the Argentine coup of 1976 up until 1983. Um, and that junta, of course, is probably best known for throwing political opponents out of helicopters, torture, and other human rights abuses. To my mind, it may be significant that Stanley Woodward is representing both Klein and Walt Nalta, and was in the grand jury chambers on Thursday because he's also representing Mr. William Russell. We'll not call him Bill Russell because, yeah, he doesn't play basketball. All right, maybe he does. I don't know, but, yeah, odd coincidence. Now, it doesn't mean that Trump was paying for Klein's defense, um, but it could be because we do know that Woodward has done legal work that has been paid for by Sidney Powell, and also the Save America PAC in January 6th cases. So his work uh, representing Russell the, this week probably paid for by the Save America PAC or another one of Trump's various front organizations. By the way, Klein's case did not work well for him. He was convicted of the following counts. I believe it's eight in total. Civil disorder, obstruction of an official proceeding, and aiding and abetting assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers using a dangerous weapon, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds, 
disorderly and disruptive conduct at a restricted building or grounds, engaging in physical violence at a restricted building or grounds, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, active physical violence in the Capitol grounds or buildings. All this in a bench trial before Trump-appointed Judge Trevor McFadden. Now, McFadden has issued any number of rather, to me, questionable rulings, right? Most notably, he was responsible for that uh, only other acquittal besides Beeks, um, Mr. Martin. Um, but he's actually held firm in a lot of the AFO cases. A lot of people have criticism for McFadden. I will carve out the exception that actually he's done just fine when it comes to a lot of these AFO cases, as we'll see. I mean, he's done here. He convicted Klein of all counts. Now, oddly enough, um, McFadden also got really mad, um, not Woodward, but apparently at the government uh, because there was a half-hour delay that was caused by Woodward's tardiness from his session representing um, Wood, representing, um, sorry, Russell in the same building, in the same court building, uh, that was delayed. Uh, again, he decided to stay there. He that was that was his choice. That wasn't the government's choice. Uh, he actually could have left, um, but instead, Trevor McFadden got mad at the government for some reason. It's bizarre. I don't know why uh, you would get mad at the government. Uh, because Woodward is late. He said, quote, Talking about obstructions of an official proceeding, the government has not acted as I required. Oh, well, excuse me. Okay. Right. I mean, Woodward's decision to represent Russell was a choice. He knew that he had another case in D.C. this week. Well, I don't think McFadden's in the same league as um, Eileen Cannon. Uh, you know, he's not putting blame on the correct party here. The same president who appointed McFadden engaged in criminal schemes so vast that McFadden's verdict against one Trump appointee had to be delayed because the defense counsel was rep representing another Trump witness testifying before a grand jury and was likely to become the case of the century, the January 6th case. So the remedy for this is for Trump to hire more lawyers. The onus isn't and shouldn't be on the government. It should be on the defendant, Trump for creating a criminal enterprise so vast he can't actually find enough lawyers to represent all of the defendants and witnesses involved in his many criminal schemes. All right, so I'm almost uh, a little sad I spent so much time on the Toronto case because the verdict in the Klein case is actually uh, just as important, if not more so. This was, as I mentioned, the tunnel assault, the crushing attack against police, including MPD officer Danny Hodges. Um, We've already had, I think, six or seven people plead guilty or be found guilty, uh, including McCaughey, uh, in these series of cases. This is just uh, another one of those. In addition to Klein, this case originally included one Christopher Quaglin, who's a sprayer and physical assaulter of multiple officers. Quaglin ultimately didn't go to trial in this case because he pleaded guilty to 14 counts on July 11th. 12 felonies, and two misdemeanors at the very last minute before his trial. Uh, by the way, uh, Quaglin's Gibson go is at $82,000, so hopefully there will be a fine imposed in that case. Klein's other co-defendant, one Stephen Capuccio, was found guilty of AFO, but McFadden did acquit him of two other charges, including the 1512 obstruction of an official proceeding count. So that's the pattern with McFadden, of course. 
And again, uh, you know, not necessarily bad on AFOs, but weak on the, the 1512 charge. Um, although not as bad as Carl Nichols, who's the judge whose rulings in these 1512 cases were overturned by the D.C. Circuit Court in December of 2022. So good to know that even though he acquitted one of the defendants of the 1512 obstruction count, he actually did convict Klein of that count. All right, so sorry for the overlap between the coverage of cases involving defendants in the mob and the cases against Trump and his co-conspirators, but I actually take that as a bit of a positive sign that we're reaching the point where the common sense linkage is also now supported in court. As I've mentioned in some recent episodes, if you read the transcripts closely, you really get a sense of how it's all of a piece, how the scheme to install fake electors culminated in the attack on the Capitol on the day when electors were supposed to be certified, and I hope to see that linkage in court documents any day now. In another development that's certainly worthy of an entire episode, on Tuesday, May 18th, Michigan Attorney General Char uh, Nessel, Dana Nessel charged 16 tr uh, fake Trump electors with multiple felonies, including conspiracy to commit forgery, forgery, conspiracy to commit election law forgery, and election law forgery. You've probably read some of the reporting on this by now, so I will give a fairly quick gloss. The most surprising thing to me is that she charged the entire slate of fake electors, which is an indication of how strong the case is. She didn't have to go out and uh, give plea bargains to people in exchange for testimony. They already have everything that they need. Now, there are parts of the case where, really, the documentation is pretty strong such as the fake electors' attempt to enter the state capitol in Lansing on December 14th, an attempt, of course, that was unsuccessful. But in all these state-level cases, there are extensive documentary records that make all of these cases pretty irrefutable. This fake elector scheme didn't just happen. It took a lot of work by figures linked to state-level Republican politics and to the Trump campaign and to the RNC to make this happen. And they, unlike Trump himself, were not going around eating slips of paper and burning them and flushing them down to the toilet. They used email, like normal people. And these emails are in the hands of uh, attorney generals and federal prosecutors. And this is, again, along with uh, Fonnie Willis in Georgia, uh, you know, something that we might see in, in some other states. So the reason that it's surprising, again, to see her charge all of these fake electors is that there are varying levels of culpability, right? Some of these fake electors were absolutely ringleaders. Uh, they were actively organizing and plotting. And then there are others who were more passive, uh, basically warm bodies selected on the basis of their degree of unhinged loyalty to Trump. So in all these state-level cases, there are Trump electors who also withdrew for whatever reason. Uh, many of them did this because they were convinced of the illegality of the scheme, even before anyone ever suggested that these fake certificates would be sent to the National Archives, which is the culminating capstone of the fraud, right? I mean, no matter what you thought going into it, there's no excuse to sign these documents, lie about what you did in the process, say that you're a real elector, and then submit it to the National Archives. That's the, the component that makes all of these potentially linked in to a broader federal case that hopefully will be dropping soon. Now, in every state that submitted fake certificates, the electors were in contact with organizers from the Trump campaign, people such as Mike Roman, 
a Philadelphia political operative who worked for Trump in Pennsylvania and elsewhere to organize these schemes. Roman appears to be cooperating with the government under a proffer agreement, as was reported in late June. As always, link in the, in the show notes. There's absolutely a linkage between these state-level cases and the Trump campaign, so it's a little surprising to me that Nessel didn't charge any of the electors' co-conspirators in the Trump campaign. But then again, I'm not an attorney, much less an attorney general. I'm sure she has her reasons. It's possible that a decision has been made to charge the overall plot at the level of the campaign federally, and that would make some kind of sense. So maybe there's going to be a case against, say, Kenneth Chazebro or Cheesebro, um, and people like Ian Northam, uh, a Michigan attorney who worked closely with the Michigan fake electors to pull off the scheme, or James Troupas, a former judge who was hired by the Trump campaign to run the fake elector scheme in Wisconsin, or Andrew Hitt, an attorney in Wisconsin Republican Party chairman whose committee transcripts shows a pretty high level of cooperation with the committee. Um, he's actually a bit of an interesting case because he's smart, and yet he also knew what he was doing was illegal. Uh, he actually said as much uh, in his uh, testimony and also in, like, text and information that they have. Like, he sends emails, someone's like, oh, this is this is so illegal, this is not going to work. And it's like, well, then why, why, anyway. Um, he, by the way, also works for the, the same law firm that uh, Stefan Pasentino, uh, Michael Bassin Friedrich, uh, works in uh, one of their Wisconsin offices now. So that's kind of interesting. Um, now, Hit thinks he's covered because he thought the electors were supposed to be used as a contingency. And so as part of this, um, he actually supplied a lot of really good documentary evidence to support this, but also to support uh, all the other possible charges. So we're going to have to see on that. But again, I'm just naming all these people, talking a little bit about them, because they're all very differently situated, right? So you have the Trump campaign, you have Trump, you have these intermediate level people, you have the plotters, you have the plotters who are actually also fake electors, and then you have fake electors who are basically uh, just, you know, I believe, um, stupid elderly people who have been active in Republican part politics and are absolutely, uh, you know, deranged, but nonetheless, uh, less culpable, one would think, than the ones for whom we have just enormous amounts of evidence. I'll talk about this in a moment, tying them to the central network of the Trump campaign, right? This is not some kind of administrative oversight. This is not a clerical error. This is a, a huge national conspiracy involving hundreds of individuals to subvert the election, and it is enormously important. So, uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel of Michigan, thank you very much for your service. I do not believe this is an accident that this is coming out on the day when a Trump January 6th indictment is expected. So, yeah. Um, Kenneth Cheesebro, for example, took the fifth over 100 times in his committee transcript. So, yeah. Just a lot of, uh, of different people who could be charged at different levels, at state and federal John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Ronna McDaniel, Justin Clark, Matt Morgan, Jenny Thomas, Boris Epstein, and so on and so on. And their names show up in the committee transcripts. So um, there are actually fewer fake elector plot people in the committee transcripts than I would like, but the ones they, they give us um, really give you a very good idea of the essence of the plot. 
and the linkage between these state-level operatives and the national campaign. Now, the case to bring in Michigan is probably easier to bring than the cases in some other states. They clearly violated state law because state law requires that the electors meet in the state capitol on December 14th. Now, the electors tried to do this, or the fake electors tried to do this, but they couldn't. And when they couldn't, they met in the basement of the Michigan Republican Party headquarters a few blocks away, and yet they certified that they had properly met at the Capitol in compliance with state law. Oops, they all signed that. That's fraud. That's what they're being charged with. They weren't allowed to even bring their phones into the meeting, which shows, I believe, some kind of cognizance of the fact that they all knew they were taking part in skullduggery. The head of the Michigan branch of the Republican National Committee, Kathy Burden, took the fifth dozens of times in her testimony before the January 6th committee, and she was also represented by two lawyers from the Dillon Law Group, um, like many other Trump witnesses who were uncooperative and probably paid for out of the Save America PAC slush fund. I'm going to give you just a sampling of what uh, Kathy Burden had to say in her transcript of her testimony before the January 6th committee as it relates to fake electors in Michigan. Question, did you ever discuss the plan to have a Republican electors meet and cast votes in the state of Michigan for President Donald Trump with Stu Sandler? Answer, fifth. Question, did you ever discuss that plan with Troy Hudson? Answer, fifth. Did you communicate about any plans to have Republican electors meet in the state of Michigan to cast votes for Donald Trump with anybody from the Trump campaign? Answer, fifth. Question. And now I'm going to just list off a number of people. Did you ever discuss it with Boris Epstein? Answer, fifth. Did you ever? Fifth. Question. Did you ever discuss it with Jesse Law? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Jesse Binnell? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Sean Flynn? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Jenna Ellis? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Rudy Giuliani? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Christina Bob? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with Kenneth Cheesebro? Fifth. Did you ever discuss it with John Eastman? Fifth. Did you ever discuss this plan with Ron McDaniel? I believe they mean Rana. Answer, fifth. Did you ever communicate with anybody in the White House about the plan to have Republican electors meet and cast votes in state in, uh, excuse me, cast votes for Donald Trump in Michigan, where he had lost the popular vote? Answer, fifth. It's from pages 12 and 13 of, of her transcript. So probably my favorite part of this snippet is the part where uh, she hasn't even let the committee staff member even say who they're asking about. Just blurts out, fifth, 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 <laughs> to everything. So as you can see, there's a lot of there there, and there's going to be documentary evidence supporting uh, at least some of these conversations that Burden had with some of these people. And it just shows how the, you know, how many high-level people were implicated in the uh, state-level fake elector scheme. And, of course, many of these people were also involved in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th uh, and the big lie and everything else. So, um, yeah, I just think there's, there's much more of this story than has been reported. Uh, and, again, that's, you know, we like to blame the media sometimes, but uh, there's just so much criminality going on. And um, these fake elector schemes aren't necessarily being treated uh, as much of the, you know, the natural story as it should be. Um, but I see this, you know, being as big 
as the case against Trump uh, being brought by Fonnie Willis in Georgia because, of course, you know, eh, I think that there's some good evidence to argue that you could charge this in Michigan uh, as well as uh, Willis has done in Georgia. So, I mean, there's no Raffensperger phone call. Um, but, again, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Trump campaign and perhaps even Trump himself and certainly people around him were intimately involved in this scheme to commit fraud and election fraud in Michigan, the very thing, of course, that they are accusing their political opponents of doing. And again, don't think it's an accident that this is happening uh, just when Jack Smith is poised to indict Trump in the January 6th scheme. It's not a clerical error. This is a nationwide scheme to defraud the government um, of the United States and to also deprive, of course, millions of legitimate voters of their right to have their vote counted. So whatever contingencies these fake electors may have, there's no legitimate reason to submit these fake certificates to the National Archives. This is all directly a link to the assault on the Capitol, which is something like Plan D. And so before I move on, finally, to... Um, the planned in plain sight report, uh, the report on the intelligence failures in advance of January 6, 2021. I would also like to mention um, something that is not confirmed but worthy of mention anyway. There has been reporting uh, about the specific contents of the target letter that includes uh, some specific charges um, that basically this is like third hand. So someone who's seen the letter described this to someone else on background. Um, so we don't know. And we don't know whether or not this is an exhaustive and comprehensive list of charges that are emerging. I suspect it's not. But it also confirms my suspicion that part of what's going to happen uh, involves the fake elector schemes. So three different um, sections under Title 18 of the U.S. Code ha have been referenced here. Um, first is uh, Section... 381, this is conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, talked about this for a long time, of course, on the show. Again, there's a, it's a thing of value. The presidency is a thing of value. And if you've got people who are conspiring to commit a fraud, i.e. by, let's say, submitting fake elector certificates, that's fraud. And that's conspiracy to commit fraud. And so that's not a surprise. Um, there's also, of course, the 1512 obstruction of an official proceeding count. This is not a novel application at this point. Uh, it's been upheld in hundreds of cases for the rioters, right? And again, if, you know, um, the rioters are obstructing an official proceeding uh, in, you know, by attacking Congress, by being in the Senate chamber, well, certainly the person who's organizing the whole scheme is also working to obstruct an official proceeding. And there's probably better evidence against Trump in this regard than there is against many of the rioters, Although, again, you know, he's Teflon Don, right? So, you know, we will see. But I think there's a strong case to bring there. And the final one, uh, Title 18, Section uh, 241, uh, which relates to depriving people of rights and depriving people of rights under uh, color of law, Sections 241 and 242. Um, this is less mentioned. This is not something that was mentioned in the committee report. But, of course, it does appear... You know, this, this reporting does factor into a theory of the crime. Part of the reason I think why people don't talk about this as much is that this is something that was aimed at 
uh, people during re the Reconstruction era here in my home region of the country, the South particularly, where you had issues, uh, issues. You had paramilitary gangs, i.e. the Klan and the Red Shirts, who were conspiring together to conspire uh, to uh, prevent people from voting in particular. You would have black voters, for example, who would be killed uh, merely for voting. So uh, this is something this has been, you know, on the books for quite some time. And it is not an accident in this case. I want to mention here that, that this would be great to enforce because this is actually not just a problem with Trump. This has been going on for a long, long time. There has been an orchestrated effort to deprive minority voters in particular of their rights to vote. And so if you look at the places where Trump was contesting, you know, all this talk by Giuliani, for example, of people in Philadelphia, all this talk about people in Wayne County in Michigan, they're always targeting these majority minority areas. They're always alleging without evidence that majority minority areas are places with fraud. But we know that there are places like the villages. They're in fact majority, you know, white areas where we see lots of fraud, especially when it comes to double voting. Um, but the you know the charges of fraud are leveled by Trump systematically against majority minority areas, which is where the Democrats are, right? So this is a concerted effort to deprive people of their right to vote, and this relates uh, somewhat to Bush v. Gore back in uh, 2001. Um, that decision, wherein you had uh, the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, right? claimed that it was violated by different ways of counting different votes. Well, here you have uh, the President of the United States trying to just dump votes from certain areas. And, uh, you know, that, again, I, I personally would li not like the Supreme Court to revisit Bush, Bush v. Gore, uh, particularly as currently constituted. But again, this is not just a problem for Trump. This is something that the Republican Party has been doing for a long time. So I'm happy to see that this charge is on the issue, is, is out there, um, but it is something that, uh, you know, I think is surprising because the Republicans have been doing it for so long and that, you know, it's surprising to see them actually charged with it because, of course, this is what they're doing. This is what the Brooks Brothers riot was all about. Um, this is something that they've been doing for quite some time, and I'd like to mention, of course, as always, in this connection, the Heritage Foundation and Hans von Spaskowski, um, who is, of course, the leading election denier. He was doing election denying before election denying was even a thing and has always been working to restrict who can vote and to narrow the electorate as much as possible. So, again, this is someone whose father was brought here in Operation Paperclip, set up in Huntsville, Alabama, you know, and uh, has been a, a bean uh, to democracy in the United States ever since. And, uh, you know, he's free. You know, he, of course, also, again, um, took part in many of the parts of the big lie uh, in 2020. And yet his name is rarely mentioned. But there is he is part of an institutional network of Republicans to deny the franchise to people of color in this country. So... It would be great to see this charge included. Um, it's not exactly a novel application. In fact, again, you know, it goes back to uh, the Reconstruction era. Um, you know, uh, again, like like the charges of obstructing officers, 
Uh, you know, that actually goes back to the Reconstruction era. You have a lot of, it is, is odd how the past is prelude, how we've got these uh, codes that are being violated in, in some sense by the very same people uh, who would have been, you know, on the side of the baddies during the Reconstruction era. So, again, just want to put that out there. We don't know that for sure. Maybe we'll even know, we'll probably know that like one minute after I wind up actually posting this, uh, this podcast. Um, but that is, quote, the surprise charge, even though there were people who were mentioning the possibility of this in uh, 2021. So we'll see. But if so, you know, it could be a strong case, right? Because uh, here in North Carolina, for example, we've had systematic efforts to uh, deny uh, black people the right to vote. Uh, it's been done through racialized gerrymandering. It's been done through attempts to, you know, explicitly, right, and upheld. Um, that there, you know, We had evidence here in North Carolina showing that the gerrymanders were done with a specific eye to minor, uh, minority voters and keeping as few of them, you know, packing them into ever smaller districts uh, so that they would get less representation. And so this is, again, part of an effort that's been going on for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, very excited to see this because, of course, this would become a case that would help support voting rights all across this country. And now we turn to the main uh, body of the episode, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Staff Majority Report uh, from Chairman Gary Peters, Planned in Plain Sight, a review of the intelligence failures in advance of January 6, 2021. Although they call this intelligence failures, it's clear from the substance of the report that, in fact, these are not intelligence failures. The intelligence was collected. What happened was that there was a failure to properly disseminate the intelligence, a failure to properly gather intelligence where it was actually needed, mistargeting of intelligence, and a host of other issues. One issue that this report really did clarify for me that I hadn't actually given adequate thought to is a timeline regarding the lead agency kerfuffle, where there was a meeting to decide who was going to be the lead agency, who thought was going, you know, which agency was going to be in charge on January 6th. And there's been the issue with the Department of Justice. Some people thought it was the DOJ. No one in the DOJ thought it was going to be the DOJ. And on a de facto basis, it winds up being uh, D.C. government, but more on that later. Um, the issue that I think it really brings to the fore is the timing of the DOJ's decision to not put its name, its hat in the ring for the position of lead agency. Why? Well, this literally occurred on the same day as that uh, the attempted mass firing and slash resignation of Trump lawyers from the Trump White House and top levels of the Department of Justice, the incident wherein um, Trump was... Sorry, Jeff Clark wanted to fire his own boss, Jeff Rosen, and replace him with himself. And this, again, it makes a lot of sense as to why uh, the DOJ totally did not want to be the lead agency on January 6th. But I'll cover that uh, when we get to it. But again, uh, one problem with the report is that it really does, it, aim, it aims its guns at mid-level and no higher. Uh, so it never focuses at all on the role of either Christopher Ray at the FBI um, or Chad Wolf at DHS. 
And the issue is that the buck should stop somewhere. And most of the dialogue over these issues have completely, uh, not I won't say exonerated, because they haven't really even looked at the very top level, the role that these two Trump appointees played in the failures on January 6th. That being said, um, this report is very different from the reports, uh, you know, from the committee report looking into the failures on January 6th. And, and I believe it's probably the most comprehensive look at the intelligence failures that, well, probably that we're ever going to see. So it's worth spending some time with it. Uh, and if you want, of course, obviously, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, you can take a look at it. And I believe it is worth your time. You know, they didn't have to negotiate the findings out with anyone. This is just their findings. And they didn't have to redact it to uh, put the onus solely on Trump. They could actually look at the things that were failures with regard to uh, the FBI and DHS's handling of open source intelligence in particular. So that's what this report does. And we'll see how it gets to its conclusions. One of the things it clearly does is to say that both DHS, INA, and the FBI were biased, that they were looking at, you know, BLM and Antifa, that they were not looking at uh, the Trumpist threat on January 6th. They used, once again, the failures of the summer of 2020 when they were engaged in all kinds of misconduct to justify not doing anything on January 6th. And again, the valence there, there is a consistency. It's utterly consistent with the fact that you have these agencies headed up by two Trump appointees and they're looking very closely at BLM and Antifa in the summer of 2020, but not looking at all at the threat of, let's say, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, Nick Fuentes' Groypers, and everyone else on the far right in the post-election environment and the run-up to January 6th itself. So, again, we should remember Shane Lamond, the person uh, who has been charged with giving FBI information uh, to the Proud Boys with regard to a, a different case, nonetheless, uh, he was in charge of intelligence at the MPD. One of the few, I, I would say, bad actors that we've seen in that agency. Uh, most of the, the faults were not in D.C. policing, um, D.C. policing ultimately winds up saving the day. Nonetheless, it is the intelligence component, the person who's heading up the intelligence effort for the MPD, who winds up getting charged for being too close to Enrique Terrio and, in fact, actually sharing law enforcement-sensitive information about an FBI information with Terrio. All right, so let's begin in the beginning with the executive summary. Um... The committee writes, or rather the staff writes, quote, This investigation found that the breach of the Capitol on January 6th was also the result of a failure by federal agencies to assess and disseminate intelligence about the potential for violence that day. Now, I would, my, I would add potential is too weak of a word to use here. Uh, really, it is the, the certainty of violence. And if you look at a, when we get to the section on intelligence, you will find... I, this is a curated list, and is they they pay a lot of attention to the volume of material that was collected. 
but there's also an issue with quality. The the people that they have these uh, reports from, as we'll see, it's highly credible sources. It's not some random anonymous individual on the internet. It is, in fact, people who have researched uh, far right violence. People who are uh, you know, have resumes. They have credible histories. Um, and they're, they're getting this information from highly credible sources. I mean, they've got Parler reporting on their own users. And they say, nah, that's fine. I mean, again, the people at Parler are saying, whoa, this is this is pretty serious. We better talk to somebody in the government. They're like, nah, that, that, that's fine. That's a, a severe problem. And so they ask questions about, on the one hand, okay, there's this intelligence that's being disseminated. On the other hand, you have the people who are in a position to act in that intelligence reaching conclusions that appear to be completely uninformed by it. So uh, on page four, we'll see, quote, INA was also increasingly aware of calls for violence in the days and weeks before January 6th. For example, in late December 2020, INA analysts identified comments re referencing using weapons and targeting law enforcement and the U.S. Capitol building. On December 30th, INA open source intelligence collectors noted online discussions of organizing in Virginia and then driving to D.C. armed together as the police military won't be able to stop thousands of armed patriots. On January 2nd, 2021, INA collectors noted that individuals were sharing a map of the U.S. Capitol building online and the INA collectors messaged each other, quote, feel like people are actually going to try and hurt politicians. Jan 6 is going to be crazy. And lots of discussions of coming armed to D.C. Okay, so that's the intelligence. And the next thing the, the report notes is, Despite that intelligence, as late as 8.57 a.m. on January 6th, a senior watch officer at DHS National Operations Center wrote, quote, there is no indication of civil disobedience, end quote. Again, not even violence, right? They're saying there's not even going to be civil disobedience. So there's this, uh, it's completely incongruous, as though the uh, decision-making is completely uninformed by the intelligence. They either weren't looking at their emails or they just decided that no Trumpist threat was actually going to be uh, deemed as credible. Reading further on, page four, quote, this investigation found that part of the reason the FBI failed to take more action to learn or warn its federal partners in the public was because it failed to seriously consider the possibility that threatened actions would actually be carried out and it dismissed every individual threat as not credible in isolation, but failed to fully consider the totality of threats and violent rhetoric associated with such a contentious event. And then, as something that I've talked about at length on this podcast, quote, FBI also focused on potential clashes, clashes between protesters, e.g. the Proud Boys, and counter-protesters, e.g. Antifa, based on its experiences with previous demonstrations at the expense of focusing more attention and reporting on the growing threat to elected officials and the Capitol itself, end quote. And of course, again here, absolutely true, but we should look at the role for leadership here, which is, again, not something that they really find fault with. And there's also the issue that um, race played a role here, right? And they don't explicitly mention this, but it is, uh, you know, 
pretty remarkable. They do note that there's a pendulum swing with regard to the difference between how things were handled in the summer of 2020 and how things were handled in the run-up to January 6th. Quote, INA's mistakes during racial justice demonstrations in 2020, during which the agency was criticized for over-collecting intelligence on American citizens, resulted in a pendulum swing, after which analysts were then hesitant to report open-source intelligence they were seeing in the lead-up to January 6th, end quote. And again, uh, the report does a good job of noting these kinds of fact patterns, doesn't necessarily do a good job in saying that they are consistent. The valence is consistent. So, I mean, if you look at what's happening with regard to, um, you know, being harsh in summer of 2020, but being utterly negligent in the run-up to January 6th. Page 5, uh, talking about the uh, GAO, quote, GAO found that FBI employees wrongly concluded they could not process certain online tips because they determined they were not credible. Despite FBI policy requiring every tip to be logged, regardless of credibility. FBI's open source monitoring capabilities were also degraded mere days before the attack because the Bureau changed contracts for its third-party social monitoring tool. And we'll talk about that uh, when we get to it, but there's a company called Data Miner who had the contract for the FBI social media monitoring, and this was switched in part because Data Mining, uh, Data Miner did some, some bad things in the summer of 2020, and so they want to change the contract. Data Miner is a far larger operation than the, the company that won the contract, uh, Zero Fox, and the switchover, the changeover was extremely badly implemented. Uh, there appears to be no, you know, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the usual stories, right? It's like, it takes time to actually train people to use these new tools and capabilities. Uh, dissatisfaction with Zero Fox was such that the FBI jokingly dubbed it Zero Fox, as if they, they give zero fucks. So that obviously was a problem on January 6th. In section two, they deal with uh, what they call findings of fact and recommendations. Although again, one would arguably recommendations usually go at the end. And a lot of these recommendations are, in my opinion, uh, kind of weak sauce. Um, so there are seven of them. First is, FBI and INA received numerous early warnings, tips, and other intelligence about plans for violence on January 6th. That's a finding of fact. It's true. They laboriously documented. Two, FBI produced only two limited raw intelligence documents related to January 6th, both issued the night before the attack. Uh, this is uh, the bulletin from the New Orleans field office and also the um, FBI Norfolk field office. Uh, both of which were issued on the evening of January 5th. And the New Orleans field office uh, referred to a quick reaction force in Northern Virginia. Don't know who, who that might be referring to. Um, but again, if you, you're doing this on the evening before the event, really in the government or any large organization, that's already too late. People aren't going to check their email at night. They're not going to be ready in the morning for, for any of this. Um, you need to allow more time than that, and the evidence shows that there was plenty of cause for concern prior to the evening of January 5th. Three, INA did not issue any intelligence products specific to January 6th, and instead provided only general information on nationwide threats. That's true. So they had 
15 reports in the preceding year, but, quote, they were about the general heightened threat environment around the country, such as broad trends in election-related violence, end quote, and not an adequate focus, arguably, on the threat of Trumpists in particular, right? These are vague. They're not saying, people using the hashtag 1776 rebel are saying to storm the Capitol. That's, you know, they had that information, they didn't do anything with it. Four, despite claims by some agency officials and analysts, FBI and INA have authority to monitor open source intelligence, including social media, and agency guidelines require them to report certain online threats. So again, in the summer of 2020, they were scooping up and looking at everything. In the run-up to January 6th, they decided, no, wait, there are First Amendment concerns here. Now, we can't look in this, and to the extent that we are looking at this, uh, we can't really do anything with it because it's a freedom of speech issue. Total nonsense. And they knew it. Yeah, again, that's really a cover story. Five, FBI had a contract with third-party software provider to search and flag potential threats that expired December 31st, 2020, undermining their efforts days before January 6th, 2021. And again, I just talked about that. Uh, we'll talk about it more in a bit. But, you know, oh, hopefully that's not, not going to happen again. As we've seen, the, they have many different ways to stand down government policing when they want to. Six, FBI and INA failed to follow agency guidelines on the use of open source intelligence. Scanning down, FBI also did not develop certain tips about January 6th because they were deemed not credible. Contrary to FBI policy, that requires every tip received to be logged as long as it meets an authorized purpose for investigation, regardless of credibility. Now, as we'll see, there's this volume of material, and they're not, you know, they're not logging these tips. Um, they're deeming each individual tip to be not credible. And also, as we'll see, no, actually, you look at the, the, the tips that they're getting, uh, not just their observations, but they're getting tips from people and institutions that are or ought to have been held to be extremely credible. Six, seven, sorry. DHS did not designate January 6th as a national security event. Again, that's Chad Wolf. They don't mention Chad Wolf here, but that would have been up to Chad Wolf, and he didn't do it. Quote, DHS did not designate January 6th an NSSE, which likely would have increased security and response coordination and capabilities before and during the attack. True. However, one uh, part that is pointed out later on in the report that um, hadn't occurred to me before this, but if it was designated an NSSE, who would have been the lead agency? The U.S. Secret Service. The USSS. So maybe that's an issue. Uh, maybe actually we're better off that with them not designating it a national security event. Because, as we've seen, there have been a lot of questions about how the, the Secret Service conducted itself in the run-up to January 6th and on January 6th itself. So they then issue a series of investigations. Uh, much of which, by the way, is just, um, you know, again, let's investigate ourselves. That's, that's, that's nonsensical, right? So uh, we know, for example, that uh, DHS, OIG is not going to do a good job here. Um, that's just the reality of the situation. Um, one, conduct internal after-action reviews on the intelligence collection, analysis, and dissemination processes 
in the lead up to January 6th. And this would be directed by the Attorney General and the DHS Secretary. Well, okay. We've got better people in those roles now. Um, and we certainly, but we still have the old uh, DHS OIG uh, Kufari in place. So maybe look at getting rid of that guy. Two, review and reform INA's mission in domestic intelligence collection and dissemination. And they, they hand this one to Congress. Congress should review and reform INA's mission in domestic intelligence, including how it analyzes intelligence and coordinates intelligence sharing with federal agencies, other DHS components, and external partners such as fusion centers. Yeah, okay, great. Actually, uh, the DC fusion center was the only one who actually really kind of did their job. Everyone else seems to have been stood down. And that's a narrative I think that you can find throughout the, the report. Uh, implicitly, all of these data points point to intelligence is coming up, and then nothing is done. Agencies were stood down. And by whom? Trump appointees, of course. Three, improve FBI and INA policies, guidelines, and procedures for collecting, analyzing, and disseminating intelligence to partner agencies. Uh, this part, I, I think, is particularly, particularly relevant. Quote, as part of these efforts, the agencies should assess potential biases toward discounting intelligence that indicates an unforeseen or unprecedented attack or event. And again, there's clear political bias, right? These are people who believe that the left in general, and black people in particular, are capable of anything. We have to do anything, whatever we can, Call out everybody. But when uh, Trumpists and the far right and white supremacists, actual white supremacists, do something, they stood down. Period. Full stop. They should call a spade a spade. Four. Clarify agencies' policies and procedures for using open source information, including social media. Uh, and again, that, that is concerning the whole effort. It's like, well, there's a First Amendment issue. You know, again... This is an issue of political bias, and they don't, I think, take that head on. Five, designate joint sessions of Congress to certify the president, uh, presidential election as an NSSE. Yeah, okay, they could do that, but again, if the Secret Service is compromised, maybe that's not a good idea. Six, improve interagency coordination for significant events and consider designating a lead federal agency. Uh, there's this whole kerfuffle around it. It, ultimately, though, the lead federal agency winds up becoming Mayor Muriel Bowser. Muriel Bowser saves the day. Uh, MPD saves the day. The D.C. Fusion Center saves the day. This is not, you know, on ad hoc basis, it wound up being their ball on the day. So, you know, even if they, if they designate the U.S. Secret Service as the lead federal agency, uh, hmm, probably a failure, right? So, you know... Uh, or certainly DHS, right? FBI, you know, not these are we're not looking at people who come out of this with great reputations. I think so. You know, I don't think it's confusion. I think it's any one of them probably wouldn't have done a very good job. Seven, responsibly reassert congressional oversight authorities over the executive branch. Yeah, sure, but the thing is, members of Congress, they they want to kiss babies. You know, this is actually uh, a lot of hard work. Moreover, they have to deal with. Um, the pushback from these agencies, ultimately, you know, unless you mess with their budget or uh, do something at the top level, um, you know, there's 
congressional oversight really, I wish, was more effective than, than really it ultimately is. I mean, as you can see, here they have to issue a staff report of the majority rather than a report out of the full committee because that's where Congress is today. Congress is not, you know, effective in its oversight activities. They can barely pass a budget and keep the government from shutting down. We're going to be lucky if they uh, don't actually default on the national debt. All right, so we're at page 10 in the introduction. They talk about the amount of damage, number of people uh, arrested. Um, they claim that over 2,000 individuals participated in the seven-hour attack, assaulting at least 174 police officers and causing more than $2.7 in damage. Likely an undercount there, right? Um, there may have been as many as 3,600 people who wound up being insiders or AFO defendants, but sure, uh, it was a big deal. And they just document that here. They then recapitulate some of the work that's been done uh, both in the, the House Select Committee and in various other committees and then reiterate why this report is needed. Quote, uh, page 12, the House Select Committee's report largely focused on President Trump's role attempting to overturn the 2020 election and only briefly discussed federal intelligence efforts in the lead up to the events of January 6th. The House Select Committee report found that intelligence agencies, including FBI, INA, had received intelligence on the potential for violence at the Capitol. And, of course, again, talk about the tunnels and the violent militia groups, uh, who I prefer to course call paramilitary gangs, talk about the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys by name, and then notes that these agencies, quote, did not adequately prepare for and respond to the threat. And then, basically, okay, well, the failure of the report to actually do that is what causes Gary Peters to go ahead and authorize this staff report. Quote, This review included assessments of documents and information provided to the committee pursuant to its original February 2021 request for information from relevant agencies, as well as documents, interview transcripts, and supporting materials related to the House Select Committee's investigation and final report. So there's a lot of this is based off the, the uh, House Select Committee's work, although they, uh, again, do have their own independent sources of information. The report finds that the FBI and INA obtained large amounts of intelligence indicating the potential for violence on January 6th. And here is one of the most important uh, sentences in the, the whole document. However, Neither FBI nor INA issued sufficient warnings to their law enforcement partners based on that intelligence, partially because these agencies were biased toward discounting the possibility of such an unprecedented event. So, biased. FBI and INA were biased. Now, they're saying they were biased because it was unprecedented, but in point of fact, you know, we've seen the president, right? There was all that violence in the summer of 2020. Um, so, again, you know, what, what, where was the source of bias? I would contend that it's largely political, uh, and there are undercurrents of that in this report, although I do not think they do an adequate job on that score. Also, they note that, oh, guess what? there have been some issues with regard to the conduct of this staff investigation. Quote, 
At various points throughout the investigation, the committee encountered significant delays, incomplete responses, deemed document requests, including documents required to be provided to the committee under federal law, and refusals to make certain witnesses available to the committee for interviews. End quote. So even this, as good as it is, isn't necessarily a full accounting because there's stonewalling uh, at the FBI and DHS INA. The next section is on intelligence collection, analysis, and dissemination. We're on page 13 now. And they note that um, they know where, that where the domestic threat is coming from nowadays. Quote, since 2019, DHS and FBI have repeatedly identified domestic terrorism, in particular white supremacist and anti-government extremism, as the most persistent and lethal terrorist threats to the homeland. Um, so, yeah, they identify the threat here. Although, again, to my mind, there, there are questions. You know, uh, if your MPD intelligence guy is Shane Lamond, what kind of work, you know, what good does it do if INA gets him that information on time? Later, later on, uh, this is a, uh, from a, a report, another report from uh, the Senate committee uh, chaired by Chairman Peters. Quote, the report identified that domestic terrorism, primarily white supremacist extremists, had surpassed international terrorism as the most significant terrorism threat. However, the committee found that FBI and DHS over the last several years had not adequately uh, aligned their resources to meet the current threat and had failed to effectively track and report statutorily required data on the domestic terrorist threat that would enable comprehensive assessments of their efforts to counter the threat, end quote. That's uh, from the, uh, this, this very report, sorry, a uh, different report from the same committee, the rising threat of domestic terrorism, a review of the federal response to domestic terrorism and spread of extremist content, uh, November 2022. So again, yeah, inconsistent with their own findings. Both FBI and, and DHS INA have identified this kind of far-right political movement, white supremacists, as a threat. And yet, basically, they, that was a lot of words to say they haven't been doing the job, despite the fact that they have identified the threat in broad terms. They then review the role the FBI is supposed to play uh, in investigating this kind of domestic threat. And on page 17, they start a section on FBI threat assessment and information sharing. Now, they claim that, quote, when the FBI re receives tips, it reviews the content for value to determine the proper response. Skipping ahead, according to DOJ guidance, a true threat must convey a genuine threat that is not simply exaggeration or hyperbole. FBI has recognized that when collecting information online, it must adhere to these protections and has stated that in so doing, it applies a Brandenburg test established by the Supreme Court in Brandenburg v. Ohio. And FBI must determine whether the speech is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote. And they then cite uh, an interview with the committee, uh, that is to say the House Select Committee. Um, no, actually, sorry, this is a new interview with the Senate uh, Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs with, of course, uh, former Deputy Associate Attorney General Richard Donahue, who said, 
that the FBI considers, quote, the source of the threat. You're looking at how specific it is. You're looking at whether the source of the threat actually has the capability to carry it out. You're looking at whether or not they're associated with a larger group, which would mean their capabilities are greater than that of any given individual, end quote. They then go on to some of the problems with data miner and also the issue that they have with regard to that Brandenburg test and the line between protected speech and an actual threat. Again, this isn't prior restraint, by the way, but we're talking about the FBI's work to identify actual threats. Quote, due to First Amendment protections, FBI policy requires that data be automatically deleted with a certain amount of time if it does not meet FBI requirements. End quote. They then move on to an assessment of the FBI's role on January 6th, and they talk about how the FBI had responsibilities toward gathering intelligence, um, how the FBI led the Strategic Information Operations Center, or SIOC, in the lead up to January 6th, and how they brought together relevant federal and local agencies, including the Department of Defense, DHS, and the Metropolitan Police Department, to coordinate and share information about the events. Uh, and that, again, is from uh, former uh, Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue. And lastly, uh, in advance of January 6th, FBI prepared to provide law enforcement support if requested. Most notably, at the Washington Field Office, they had, quote, three SWAT teams and its special agent bomb technicians and evidence response teams. And they had two SWAT teams from Baltimore and the FBI's hostage rescue team also on standby. Which, by the way, seems like a lot for when they didn't expect anything to happen, right? So they were prepared to bring uh, all of these elite agents down. But again, according to their official work product, no threat was expected. Um, you know, a bit odd. But nonetheless, at least there's there's actually nothing that I've seen that indicates that their response with regard to the policing function part of it was inadequate. Although perhaps maybe they could have stood up more response units from across the region rather than just the Washington, Baltimore area. They also talk and then move on to DHS. In 2004, Congress created DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, giving it the primary responsibility for collecting and analyzing terrorism-related intelligence with the Undersecretary for INA serving as a chief intelligence officer for all of DHS. So, yeah, bang-up job there, right? Um, you know, this was all created in response to 9-11. And, oh, the agency we created to respond to 9-11 utterly failed to uh, adequately respond to a whole bunch of guys from Arkansas and Oklahoma and Pennsylvania who planned their attack all out in the open uh, and came to D.C. and took everyone by surprise, despite the fact that, you know, if you were online at all in the run-up to January 6th, you saw it. Quote, shortly after the January 6th attack, INA created its domestic terrorism branch, quote, to ensure DHS develops the expertise necessary to produce the sound, timely intelligence needed to combat threats posed by domestic terrorism and targeted violence. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that what the domestic terrorism branch is going to do is they're going to look at people from the left. 
they will not look at the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or any other uh, people on the right at all, right? Because that's consistent with their pattern of behavior. The pattern of behavior is that they're ready. BLM does something. If there's a racial justice movement, they are on it. They are bringing in the little green men from BOP. They are bringing in helicopters to buzz the crowds. And they're saying, oh, these are all lone actors. When in reality, of course, it's the decision makers embedded in the agencies, part of the culture of the agency, that they look one way, they will turn a blind eye to Nick Fuentes all day long, but they will, uh, you know, absolutely come down like a ton of bricks if the left does anything such as, ooh, dare to do any kind of peaceful civil disobedience. So that's my prediction for the utterly useless taxpayer-funded domestic terrorism branch that DHS has done has created in response. The culture of the agency, surprisingly, is apparently absolutely toxic because they are geared toward political bias. You know, everything that they accuse the government of doing, in fact, appears to be done by these agencies against the left and not against the right which is really, really weird. And I wish that the report uh, were a little bit more focused on this. You know, they do use the word bias at some times, but again, I don't think they adequately address the topic. Then in the section on INA's role on January 6th, uh, they discuss the inadequacies of the INA agency, uh, rather, um, sorry, the, uh, it was a branch uh, within DHS, Quote, DHS told the committee that INA participated in planning and synchronization efforts across the national capital region leading up to January 6th. Bang up job they did there, right? They sat around and did nothing and assigned personnel to monitor for potential threats of violence on January 6th itself, uh, which again led to nothing. The sections below describe how INA's efforts in the lead up to January 6th and during the attack were insufficient to effectively communicate the threat of violence to its law enforcement partners. Right. So again, 15 reports in the summer of 20, in, sorry, throughout 2020, nothing talking about the threat coming from the Trumpist attack on democracy. So they, they then mention a section on multi-agency responsibilities, and there's some interesting uh, discussion of domestic uh, violent extremists. Quote, in June 2020, these agencies issued two JIBs relating to the domestic violent extremism and warning of violent activity during, during lawful protests. The first highlighted, quote, recent arrests of domestic violent extremists for threats of violence and the potential for increased violent extremist activity occurring during lawful protests taking place in communities across the United States in response to the deaths of three unarmed African-American individuals in Georgia, Kentucky, and Minnesota. This JIB reported that, quote, the greatest threat of lethal violence continues to emanate from lone offenders with racially or ethnically motivated violent extremist RVE, RMVE ideologies and DVEs with personalized ideologies. The second JIB highlighted the elevated threat militia extremists pose to state and local law enforcement, government personnel, and associated facilities due to a confluence of drivers which have built on long-held militia extremist grievances, end quote. So they're looking at militia extremist grievances in the summer of 2020, but not in the run-up to January 6th. 
And then they talk about information sharing. Quote, although such information sharing among agencies was intended in part to prevent the kind of intelligence failures that preceded the September 11th attacks, FBI and INA failed to effectively assess the intelligence it has obtained in the lead-up to January 6th and disseminate threat assessments to enable law enforcement partners to prepare for potential violence, as described in the sections below. All right, so we're going to get to the meat here. But basically, they were gathering all this stuff, and they, quote, were not adequately disseminating it. Although, again, uh, who are they going to disseminate it to? Are they going to disseminate it to the Department of Justice? where the attorney general, the acting attorney general, doesn't even know if he's going to have a job? Is he going to, are they going to disseminate it to the FBI, who does not want to play the role of the lead agency on January 6th? Are they going to give it to the U.S. Secret Service, who uh, apparently is a staff with people who are, uh, you know, not necessarily good actors, right? I mean, you had Mike Pence worried about getting in the car with these people. Um... And, you know, who are they Who are they going to give the information to, right? What did Chad Wolf and Christopher Ray do in advance of January 6th? You're not going to find that in this report, other than, apparently, not much, right? This was not a priority. You know, not like summer of 2020, when if you dared to, let's say, block traffic, you would have helicopters buzzing you. And now we skip ahead to Section 5, which I believe is probably the most important section of the report. Federal agencies obtained a large amount of intelligence indicating the potential for violence on January 6th. And this is just, I believe, a curated selection of the kinds of intelligence that they gathered, um, some of which has been reported before. But nonetheless, I think they did a very good job of showing how credible these sources are. And they don't even mention it, by the way. But they don't even make a big deal about this. The fact that these are not, you know, weird, random people from the internet like you or I, but these are, in fact, uh, institutional actors, scholarly people, uh, people who have serious reputations and who should be, you know, one would think, taken seriously given the institutional context. Now, the report does attempt to assign some blame. And it's not on Chad Wolf, and it's not on Chris Ray, but they do identify a series of sort of, um, well, I don't want to say mid-level people, because they actually are uh, pretty high up, um, but uh, the, the next tier below them, and kind of uh, identify them as people who, you know, should, I don't know, I don't know what they're expected to do, um, but again, people who, you know, are basically scapegoats, right? They're scapegoating some people in, in here when, in reality, the buck stops further up. So in the section on the DOJ and the FBI, um, there is a, a section that is in bold and in all caps. And this is actually the, a quote from Jennifer Moore and uh, at the FBI and her conversation, her testimony with the House Select Committee. Quote, if everybody knew and all the public knew that they were going to storm Congress, I don't know why one person didn't tell us why we didn't have one source come forward and tell me that. I wish I did. End quote. Jennifer Morris, former special agent in charge of the Intelligence Division, FBI Washington Field Office. So, yeah. 
Another person they single out for, for special attention here, Jill Sanborn, former assistant director for the counterintelligence division of the FBI. Quote, none of us had any intelligence that suggested individuals were going to storm and breach the Capitol. All right. So both of these are in ca all caps and in bold. So if you want to look at who they're going to scapegoat, there they are. These are the people who the committee, or rather the staff, is pointing and saying, look, these people are absolutely full of it. And they are. They're either complicit or um, completely incompetent, right? I mean, sympathetically, you know, the most sympathetic interpretation you can have is that they're incompetent. Nonetheless, I would argue that the buck doesn't stop with Jennifer Moore and Jill Sanborn, right? You know, people higher up in the chain of command should know what things to prioritize. And the fact of the matter is January 6th wasn't a priority from the highest levels. Quote, despite this hand-wringing from the FBI, documents obtained by the committee demonstrate that not only was the FBI warned about the potential for violence on January 6th, but that it was warned repeatedly by multiple sources and specifically about threats to the United States Capitol. End quote. And it goes ahead to discuss one of these tips. A day before the attack on the Capitol, a senior staffer on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence emailed FBI to request an update on its preparations for the joint session of Congress the next day and stated, quote, the matter is of high interest to the committee, especially in light of recent press reporting suggesting that individuals possibly with links to violent extremist groups may be involved with violence or criminal activity in the vicinity of the U.S. Capitol or in relation to the event, end quote, right? And that, by the way, that's an extremely credible source, right? That is a staffer on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So, hmm, that seems like a tip and a tip from a very credible source. So, you know, again, they were stood down. This warning from Congress was far from the only warning FBI had received up to that point. And they then go through, and this is why Section 5 really is the heart of the report, because they go through these tips. And these tips are specific, actionable, specific, actionable, and from extremely reliable and credible sources. And again, this is um, kind of a change in tone, right? So... You know, they're saying that Jennifer Moore is to blame. They're saying that Jill Sanborn is to blame. But the buck doesn't stop there, right? So if you get a tip like this from someone in Congress, a staff on staff member on the Intelligence Committee, you would think that that would be uh, kind of a red flag. Similarly, as the report notes, quote, This warning from Congress was far from the only such warning the FBI had received at that point. So they then go through and do kind of a, a chronology of these tips. And I think that these are curated tips because, as we will see, these are highly credible sources. So on December 22nd, and this is on page 28, Mary McCord, who is then the legal director and visiting professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, who formerly had served as the acting assistant attorney general for national security, sent the FBI screenshots of online posts 
from members of the Oath Keepers. One user stated, quote, There is only one way in. It is not signs. It's not rallies. It's fucking bullets. End quote. The same user stated that they were ready to die for the cause as a sacrificial lamb and caused on others to join him. And uh, they actually have a copy of the screenshot from Mary McCord's monitoring of this Oath Keepers forum. And uh, she sent it to FBI Counterterrorism Division staff. So she sent it to exactly the right people. This is someone, Mary McCord, whose name may not be known to you, but uh, people who are interested in violent extremism know exactly who she is. Extremely credible threat. And again, you know, anything after December 18th, we know who did it. We know what was happening. They got that she, she saw this December 22nd. That's plenty of time for them to do something. Uh, what was the follow-up on this? Nothing, as far as we know. December 23rd, that's right, we're, we're going to almost one tip a day. The U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Again, a great tip. This is a great source. Arguably, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service is more elite than the FBI and DHS because they saw this coming, even though this isn't their, you know, this is not their area of responsibility, but the Postal Inspection Service saw this coming and the FBI and DHS apparently did not. They sent multiple agencies, including FBI and U.S. Capitol Police, among others, a threat assessment regarding the planned demonstrations on January 6th, noting, quote, potential attendees made inflammatory remarks on parlor alluding to potential violence, end quote. The assessment included screenshots of concerning quotes such as, quote, no more marching, action time. They will only listen to you if you destroy and burn things like the left does. And take up arms. Hang every traitor on January 6th. Pretty specific. Great source. Great tip. The threat assessment concluded, analysts assess a high potential for individuals to incite civil unrest during the demonstration. Well, that seems to have been borne out by what actually happened. The same day, they got another tip from another great source. Again, that's why I think this is a curated list, right? The U.S. Marshal Service sent information to the FBI, the Capitol Police, and the Secret Service, quote, a referral regarding a TikTok user calling for the use of snipers during the planned march in D.C. on the 6th of January. The user stated, in about two weeks, there's going to be a march in D.C. You know those cops are going to be lined up with their shields and shit. Like, you know what I mean? We got to get some shit going on with snipers. End quote. That's footnote number uh, 140, email from the U.S. Marshal Service staff to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And again, Federal Bureau of Investigation, U.S. Secret Service, they, I apparently deem this not credible, even though it's coming from the Marshal Service. On December 24th, 2020, the FBI received flagged posts directly from social media companies themselves. On December 24th, Parler sent the FBI a screenshot of a user post about January 6th that stated it would be, quote, not just a peaceful march. I want to start eliminating people. So, again... Parler is 
uh, go into the FBI and saying, hey, these people, they're, they're, they're a problem. We got a date. We know, you know, this, this March, it's not going to be peaceful. It's concerning enough that, you know, the far right uh, itself, their own social media platform, is going to the FBI and saying, you got to do something about this, and the FBI is not doing anything about it. So, we have the Marshal Service, U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and Parler all acting more responsibly. Mary McCord acting more responsibly than the United States government and the agencies that are charged with doing this kind of research. On December 26, 2020, the FBI's National Threat Operations Center received an anonymous tip. Okay, well, this is an anonymous tip, so clearly that's not credible, right? From a group possibly planning, dis regarding a group, sorry, possibly planning disruptions in D.C. The tipster wrote, quote, They plan to meet at a bridge in Virginia, and they will all be armed. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. They believe that since the election was, scare quotes, stolen, that is their constitutional right to overtake the government, and during this coup, no U.S. laws apply. The tipster also wrote that the Proud, Proud Boys plan to be in D.C., and, quote, their plan is to literally kill people. Please take this tip seriously and investigate further. I think they will have large numbers, and every single one of them is expecting and eager to use their weapons. The FBI then forwarded this to the U.S. Capitol Police. So whoever sent that tip in, that anonymous tip, thank you for your service. Of course, it was ignored by the FBI. Quote, the FBI did not provide those partners like USCP with a full threat assessment of the various threats and other intelligence it obtained. End quote. But it goes on. Right? So, so we've got all these sources, federal law enforcement agencies, a respected researcher, Mary McCord, um, Parler itself, anonymous tip, and then you, you've got more credible sources. So on December 27th, 2020, um, they create a, a, a tag. The FBI creates a tag. Why? Well, because they're getting all these tips about um, January 6th. And so the tag is called CERT Unrest. C-E-R-T-U-N R-E-S-T, in its Guardian system. So the Guardians are basically um, a, a way for them to basically tag everything so that, you know, it's a searchable, and you can then say, hey, I, I want to know about what could happen on January 6th. Well, you type in this tag, and all the information is going to come up for you. Quote, by creating the search unrest tag, FBI enabled its agents and analysts around the country to track all incidents or investigative leads potentially related to January 6th, indicating that the Bureau was concerned as early as December 27th on, uh, about unrest on January 6th. End quote. Despite creating this tag to track all leads potentially related to January 6th, FBI did not sufficiently assess all the, intelligent, all the intelligence it was receiving that indicated the potential for violence on January 6th as discussed below in section 6. Yeah, okay. So, they're getting all these tips. 
they create a tag, cert unrest, to keep track of these tips. Um, interesting. They, they actually, you know, they create the documentary trail to indicate that they thought it was a threat, and then they don't actually do anything to, um, you know, actually prevent anything, which is highly concerning. On December 28, 2020, the D.C. Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, Fusion Center, sent the FBI, as well as the USCP and DHS, a report that included a parlor post from a user planning an attack on January 6th in Washington, D.C. The post told people to bring body armor and stated that the user was, quote, bringing a bigger bag of tools, hammers, screwdrivers, etc. Yeah, okay, not tools, guns, right? So, again, what was in all those backpacks? It was guns! Of course it was guns! On December 29th, 2020, the D.C. Uh, Fusion Center again sent FBI, USCP, and other agencies a post from a neo-Nazi-affiliated telegram channel that, quote, encouraged supporters to march into the Capitol on January 6th, end quote. Um, the next day, despite the intelligence the FBI had received at that point indicating the potential for violence as described above, an FBI Washington field office email stated, quote, At this time, we have not identified any specific threats for January 6th. Right? So, they're getting neo-Nazi stuff now. They're getting parlor. They're getting all these respected people, uh, you know, who are giving them information. U.S. Marshal Service different agencies, postal inspectors, and Washington field office is saying, now, we haven't identified any specific threats. That's not the question. You've misunderstood the assignment here, right? It's the totality of the threat picture, not, you know, this one specific threat. By the way, that person who th says they were going to bring guns, I believe they were going to bring guns. That person who said there was going to be a QRF in Virginia, I believe there was a QRF in Virginia. You can look it up. On January 1st, 2021, an FBI NTOC received a tip about a significant increase in visits to a historical website that posted maps of the tunnel complex system of the Capitol. This, this one is, is pretty well known, um, but again, that should be pretty alarming. After receiving the tip, a USCP official stated in a January 5th email that they had, quote, identified numerous open-source comments indicating groups' intentions of finding the tunnel entrances and confronting or blocking members of Congress. Additionally, we have seen a huge uptick with reporting via open-source of the group's intentions of forming a perimeter around the campus. End quote. According to GAO, FBI and USCP found the threat credible, and the FBI took additional steps to investigate. Again, you don't need to investigate. Just shut down the demonstrations on January 6th. And that's, you know, not something that was apparently ever envisioned. But shut it down. you got all these permits that have been issued by this point. Shut them down. Say, you know what? We can't do this at this point in time. We've got people who are investigating the tunnels under the Capitol complex. Nope. You know, and that we maybe we could do a recommendation there. How about a process whereby they can just say, we're not doing this now. Sorry. Um, and that, that apparently is something that no one has envisioned in all of this. But maybe there should be a process whereby we can say, you know what, all these demonstration permits, yeah, sorry, threat picture is too bad. Alright, this is the ninth in our series of tips. On January 2nd, 2021, 
Parler, yet again, sent the FBI a post on, from January 2nd that stated, quote, This is not a rally, and it's no longer a protest. This is a final stand where we are drawing a red line at Capitol Hill. Don't be surprised if we take the hashtag Capitol, with an A, building. So, again, Parler narking out their own users, and the government is not interested. Another post warned, quote, Peaceful protests have long gone. Everyone is coming with weapons. They may be concealed at first, but if Congress does the wrong thing, expect real chaos, because Trump needs us to cause chaos to enact the hashtag Insurrection Act. Parler also sent FBI screenshots of a user account on January 2nd and stated, quote, more where this came from. Concerned about Wednesday, January 6th. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing my uh, my patriot uh, voice for for Parler, but be that as it may, um, the, the what they sent them read quote: Where have you been? Peaceful protests are long gone. LOL. Why do you think Democrats want to take your guns? So when war like this happens, you can't defend your country. Everyone is coming with weapons. They may be concealed at first, but if Congress does the wrong thing, expect real chaos, because Trump needs us to cause chaos to enact the hashtag Insurrection Act. So, yeah. Twelfth tip in this series of tips that were given to the FBI, dated January 3rd, 2021. Uh, an internal WFO Washington field office email marked for FBI internal use only, cited, quote, unsubstantiated open source reporting that ranges from threats to the D.C. water supply to armed insurrection to various groups threatening to kill those with opposing viewpoints. And the email noted an open source post regarding January 6th that said, quote, it needs to be more than a protest. We need to kick doors down and fuck shit up. And another user commented, We'll kill if necessary. So, the FBI is sending tips to itself at this point, claiming that there's people who are willing to fuck shit up if necessary. Another social media post stated, quote, I'm just waiting for the 6th so I can 1776 them. January 6th will burn the place to the ground. Leave nothing behind. The internal uh, FBI WFO email noted that a tipster reported that individuals on fringe websites were discussing an overthrow of the government if President Trump did not remain in office and started stated, quote, date of attack, 0106. A parlor user stated, quote, bring foods and guns. If they don't listen to our words, they can feel our lead. Come armed. So, again... Uh, and, oh, geez, there's more. Um, there's also uh, an email that reported social media posts that noted plans to bring firearms to the district and that the, plan the Proud Boys plan to, quote, dress incognito in order to effectively target Antifa in the city. Yes, that's right. The FBI is sending itself emails saying, um, hey, the, the Proud Boys are going incognito. Yeah, we saw that uh, Joe Biggs video and they're going to, quote, dress like Antifa. They're not going to wear their own colors. And perhaps this is something that we should be concerned about? Had a question mark? 
A tipster from Georgia told the FBI that the Proud Boys were planning to come to D.C. on January 6th and warned, quote, these men are coming for violence. Another tipster told the FBI that a Proud Boy told her they were planning an attack on January 6th to shut down the government. So, terrible, absolutely horrible operational security within the Proud Boys organization. They're bragging to random people. They're tell, telling, you know, ladies, hey, we're going to attack. Look at me, you know, how cool am I, huh? I'm going to attack the Capitol on January 6th. And this person is immediately, you know, <laughs> being like, okay, uh, first off, swipe left. Or spy on you know which way people swipe. Um, secondly, I'm going right to the FBI. So they can promptly ignore it. Quote, despite all of this reporting, the FBI summary concluded, quote, FBI WFO does not have any information to suggest these events will involve anything other than First Amendment protected activity. Are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? Apparently, apparently, apparently they thought it was a joke. They just thought this is all a gag. They're getting all this credible information, but you know what? It's not credible. After Stephen D'Antonio, assistant director in charge of the Washington Field Office, received this intelligence summary, he indicated that he sent it to then FBI Deputy Director David Bowditch, stating, quote, I just sent the whole thing. I don't want him getting a sanitized version of events. End quote. So, it doesn't matter, right? Bowditch isn't doing anything. You know, again, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is not on more, right? You know, I mean, go further up the food chain, if you will. They then um, point to uh, some of the other communications. Uh, Rear Admiral Tomney sent Bowditch a document entitled Preparations for Civil Disturbances, Week of 3rd of January, 2021. Uh, Tony, by the way, is one of the I, he's one of the uh, people in the story who I actually trust. Right, I find him actually credible. Not a bad actor. Uh, none of his that you know uh, he's not a sitting on his thumbs kind of person. Um, and yeah. Anyway, it says quote DHS INA further judges that violent extremists or other actors could quickly mobilize to violence or generate violent disruptions or otherwise of otherwise lawful protests in response to a range of issues, including possible disputes over the results of U.S. presidential elections. All right, so you've got um, that assistant director in charge of the Washington field office sending stuff to Bowditch. You've got Tomney sending stuff over. Uh, you've got that DHS INA. And, oh, wait, it's our old friend Mary McCord who that afternoon sent the FBI a report, a report that she'd written regarding planned protests on January 6th. Again, yet another quality source. You know, she's not heard anything back. I'm like, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a report. And the email noted that Oath Keepers members, Oath Keepers members were, quote, planning to attend the protests and have advised each other on weapons carrying and local gun laws. And that, quote, Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes has engaged in increasingly heated rhetoric, claiming that his organization would station armed members on standby in Virginia, awaiting Trump's order to move into the city. End quote. So this is the email from uh, Mary McCord at Georgetown to the uh, FBI 
counterterrorism division staff. And they have hopefully included an excerpt from the email. She's got bullet points. It's very nice, you know, um, that, of course, they would just completely wind up ignoring it. But, um, very record, thank you for your service. Good work there. Sorry that the FBI was headed up by Christopher Ray. The FBI also told the committee that they had obtained intelligence on or about January 3rd, indicating that individuals were planning a quick reaction force on January 6th. Any of this sound familiar? Right? So, you know, they're later on winding up charging the Oath Keepers for stuff, charging them with seditious conspiracy for stuff, in fact, that the FBI actually knew about and had warnings about, and yet apparently went up to Christopher Ray and nothing was done. I mean, in a just world, if this was a Hollywood movie, you'd have people freaking out. You've had, you'd have like one of these busy operation centers with television screens and people in uniforms and guys in suits all wandering around with papers and acting very busy. Now what happened? On January 4th, the FBI was still assessing the threat of violence to be low. At 10.50 a.m., an internal DOJ security email warned about crowds and road closures that week, but said, quote, currently there's no information indicating potential for unrest. So think about that. They're worried about people being able to get to work. They're going to close off certain roads. But you know what? Um, yeah, there's just no, no potential for unrest. They've literally just got a whole bunch of stuff about guns and uh, quick reaction forces and people threatening to, quote, fuck shit up. But instead of all this information they've gotten from law enforcement and Mary McCord and Parler itself and the Postal Inspectors and U.S. Marshals Service and anonymous tipsters, what is the information, uh, what is the intelligence the FBI is prioritizing at this time on January 4th? Well, according to this committee report, they are prioritizing their confidential human informants. Quote, WFO sent an email that afternoon that appeared to rely only on its confidential human sources and other investigative leads, concluding, quote, as of today, WFO has no information indicating a specific and credible threat. All confidential human sources and guardians are not indicating anything specific and credible. Most of what WFO is seeing are random chatter with no specificity. WFO expects the number of participants to be fewer than the previous times. Each time, the numbers get smaller. End quote. That's an email from the FBI's Critical Incident Response Group staff to the Federal Bureau of Investigation Critical Incident Response Group dated January 4th, 2021. So think about it. They're relying on their confidential human sources. They're, they're, they're stooges, right? Who made them, you know, why are they stooges? Because they're bad actors. They're trusting the bad actors rather than parlor, you know, rather than the postal inspectors, rather than the marshal service, rather than Mary McCord. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then, quote, that afternoon, WFO held another coordination call with its law enforcement partners. The committee has obtained an internal FBI email summarizing that call, 
in which WFO staff reported, quote, social media reporting is urging individuals attending the events on January 6th to come armed, end quote. FBI forwarded the information internally, stating, quote, there are a number of reports of people coming into town. There have also been some people posting pictures with weapons and the intent to do harm, end quote. Now, how is that not credible, right? Here's me. I'm, I've got a weapon. I'm posting a picture of myself online with my weapon, saying I'm going to bring my weapon to D.C. on January 6th. How much more credible and specific can you get? But that's internal use only, right? You know, um, that's like a suppository or something. Uh, they're not, this is not something that they're going to have, apparently, you know, they're not going to let anyone else know. They're just not important, I guess. They should have their budget stripped. Honestly, I know, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene's all like, abolish the FBI. But you know what? Everybody involved in this, they should be reassigned to some other duties. Because clearly, again, you know, the buck has got to stop with someone. And they got pictures of people with guns, say they're going to bring their guns to D.C., going to fuck shit up, and they did nothing. Also, uh, same date, January 4th, the FBI received, quote, a report from the Atlantic Security Council, Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, DFR Lab. Oh, again, another credible source here. What does the DFR Lab have to say? The DFR Lab report highlighted online posts related to January 6th, noting that, quote, the rhetoric is increasingly heated and that, quote, the groups in question have been active at prior DTC protests, but the volume and intensity of participants during this protest is a notable peak in activity, end quote. That's uh, on page 36, footnote 179. And this was sent uh, from the U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia to Stephen D'Antonio and Matthew Alcoke at the uh, FBI WFO. So, again, they're saying, well, we're worried about traffic, but we have no credible threats. They're getting all these people, credible people, you know, not just anonymous posts, but people who are known to have, um, you know, again, if they don't see these threats as threatable, I don't know, you know, I mean, funnily enough, like, if the people who are posing with guns were black, would that have been credible? If they had a turban on, would that have been credible? I mean, what does it take? Probably whiteness. My guess is whiteness. If it's whiteness, it's not credible. If these are Trumpists, it's not credible. But you've got Mary McCord sending them a full report. DFR Lab sending them a full report. And it's got screenshots, including one that says, quote, don't rally. Don't protest. Fight for your fucking lives. And another user replying, we got about 50 men going and we're not going with picket signs. Finally, after all this, even the FBI had to stand up and take notice. So at 2.02 p.m. on January 4th, the acting chief of the Department of Justice Counterterrorism -ter Section sent an email to then-Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, uh, who was then performing the duties of Deputy Attorney General, and then Chief of Staff to the Acting Attorney General John Moran, and then Acting U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia Michael Sherwin with their subject, January 6th reporting. And the acting chief sent an intelligence summary that demonstrating 
the dealership, the, the DOJ leadership, in addition to the W, the Washington, sorry, the FBI and WFO, was aware of the violent rhetoric and threats to the Capitol. Boom, that's your headline. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, um, these scapegoats that you're looking at. This is Richard Donahue, right? Who's someone that the committee built up as, you know, kind of like a truth teller. But yet at the same time, he's got all this information. He's got uh, the DOJ counterterrorism section, the chief of the counterterrorism section, emailing him this list of this kind of stuff, right? What kind of stuff? Here. Quote, users of an online forum threatening to attack left-wing protesters, but also Democratic and Republican politicians and other government officials involved in the finalizing the Electoral College vote count. Calls to occupy federal buildings and discussions of invading the Capitol building. Discussions of individuals arming themselves and to engage in political violence at the event. Online comments urging the establishment of an armed encampment on the National Mall and the murder of Democrats and politicians. Online comments hoping for civil war and a shot heard around the world in reference to the beginnings of the American Revolution. And a website encouraging attendees to bring guns. So, Donahue gets this. Who knows what he did with it. Um, they also, same day, January 4th, they get a report from the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Oh, they track these kind of people all the time. Seems like a credible source to me. And at 441, the F ADL sent the FBI a blog post from that day, uh, which you can find, by the way. Uh, it, it still exists online. Noting, quote, messages filled with violent rhetoric. And one call to, quote, Storm the Capitol if Congress certifies President-elect Biden's victory. The ADL flagged one user who wrote, quote, I'm waiting until the January 6th date. Then if Trump does nothing, I have a few law enforcement officer friends who are going to be doing some major action, and I am joining them, end quote. So this is, and as we saw, there were plenty of law enforcement in, people in the mob on January 6th. So, you know, pretty credible threat. You would think that that would, that would attack, you know, everyone's attention. That, it's like, oh, not only is this mob of chuds going to show up, but some of them may actually be in law enforcement. Maybe we should actually do something. All right, so we've gotten to January 5th and page 40. And according to the report, quote, FBI emails indicate that as January 5th began, FBI was still not expecting significant violence the next day. At 7.40 a.m., an internal FBI email discussed the National Crisis Coordination Center that was being activated for January 6th, stating that, quote, the main purpose of the NC3 is to have an infrastructure already in place, including plug-in of interagency partners, that should violence or criminal activity significantly occur in D.C. and or around the country. Needless to say, all oh, how sick. Yeah, there's a grammatical error in there. Uh, needless to say, all oh, how this is not necessary, but better to have it and not need it versus needing it and do a cold start. In point of fact, they opted to do both. They opted to have it and also do a cold start. Cannot, you know, I mean, unless they had actually stood down their SWAT teams, which did eventually show up, I can't imagine what the FBI could have done worse on January 6th other than to actually join the mob. 
Also that day on January 5th, there's another really good source, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. They sent the FBI their daily ethnographic monitoring brief, which contained reports and screenshots concerning online posts related to January 6th and the ISD's analysis. Quote, across all platforms, we're seeing significant promotion of the upcoming protests in D.C., along with posts claiming attendees uh, will come armed, militia chatter about the protests, and misinformation about statements from local police or politicians. And they included some selections from these kind of materials, including uh, a post from one user who said, quote, If we all bring our fucking guns, there's not one fucking thing they can do or will dare to do. And another who posted, quote, Either Trump wins or we water the tree of liberty with blood. This is the final line. Either we die for freedom or live in fear and slavery. Now is the time. It is literally now or never. End quote. So, yeah. And, of course, there's, there's you know, stuff from the Donald dot win. Um, you know, again, lots of people saw that. FBI had it and they chose to say, you know what? Main thing we're going to have to deal with here on January 6th is traffic problems. We don't actually see any threat of violence. Watch out for what's happening in Kenosha, though. That could be pretty bad. Um, in another brief from the ISD, they reported, quote, discussion of the January 6th pro-Trump protest in Washington, D.C. has become particularly paranoid and extreme in nature with warnings of violence and recommendations for participants to bring items such as knives, pepper spray, and zip ties to use as handcuffs. End quote. It seems pretty prescient. In point of fact, all of those things actually did happen. And the actually, the, the committee report uses the same word a couple of sentences later. Presciently predicting the violence that was to unfold the next day, ISD reported, quote, Notably, some are recommending the use of makeshift weapons from flagpoles as well as wearing body armor. Regarding posts from Donald Win, ISD reported the FBI, quote, there's a real undercurrent of paranoia in relation to the upcoming rally. You can see these threads, a sense of fear that is accompanying the run-up to this rally. There are going to be a lot of people on edge. So we actually do have uh, here evidence that, you know, this might have caused some people to be slightly discomfort, discomforted, finally, on the 5th. Quote, there's a, there's a meeting at the Critical Incidents Response Group and the Criminal Intelligence uh, Coordinating Council, and notes from that meeting indicate that although the FBI Deputy Director was, quote, concerned about potential unrest in D.C., and noted that domestic terrorism militia subjects were planning to enter the D.C. area for a march, FBI was still reporting, quote, no imminent threats known. So, again, they were stood down. That's 10.30 a.m., January 5th, and they were absolutely stood down. Um, also, again, it looks like the park police were stood down. There's an email from the U.S. park police staff to the FBI on January 5th, 2021. And the U.S. Park Police told the FBI, quote, this week's events will mirror what has happened within the last two months, end quote. But ended the email by stating, quote, greatest fear, DVE, lone wolf, 
extremist, apocalyptic rhetoric, location of events, world stage, political environment. All add up to time and location being desirable for action. End quote. And this was forwarded to the FBI personnel, according FBI Deputy Director Baldich. Uh, and again, where were the park police, right? I mean, uh, there were, you know, if you've ever been to D.C., uh, they've got equestrian troops, right? They've got mounted police. You know, they've got uh, their own resources. Um, but, you know, they knew this was coming. This email was actually forwarded to Deputy Director Baldich, who apparently, once again... What did he do? We don't know, right? Uh, not a lot. By midday on January 5th, WFO seemed, at least internally, to be growing alarmed about the increasing threat reporting. At 11.25 a.m., WFO SAC 8 Moore sent an internal email within WFO and said, quote, please sign on to the call. This has a huge potential to be a hot mess, end quote. So, again, they're highlighting Jennifer Moore when finally, uh, at 1130, she is beginning to realize that there's a problem. But, again, where's Ray? Where is Ray in all this? Where's Baldich in all this? Right? Um, I mean, again, this is a, this kind of scapegoating narrative. They are unwilling to go too high up at the chain of command, and so they're picking people in the WFO and say, See, this person, they didn't do anything. Um, but again, I'm seeing more from Jennifer Moore here than we've ever seen from Christopher Ray. At 12.35 p.m., the FBI received another daily report from the Atlantic Council DFR lab based on public open source information related to January 6th protests, including online posts from a chat room associated with the anti-government militia movement Three Percenters, in which a user claimed they know of a hundred militia members headed to D.C. from Colorado. End quote. So, oh, we've had the Proud Boys, we've had the Oath Keepers, now we've got the Three Percenters. They've also uh, got something from the um, Hemsa Fusion Center, right? They sent an F email to FBI, DHS, USCP, U.S. Secret Service, and the MPD drawing their attention to a website called Red State Secession, which had a post entitled, quote, Why the Second American Revolution Starts January 6th, that requested, quote, users submit addresses of residences and offices of politicians, judges, and lobbyists. They're also asking for individuals' routes to and from the event, end quote. So, again, you've got DFR Lab, You've got the Fusion Center, more stuff for the FBI to completely ignore. And more to the point, um, there's actually information indicating that Jennifer Moore was at least still on the job at 8.34 p.m. when um, WFO personnel sent an email to the FBI command post flagging an online forum at the Donald.win with advice on getting weapons into and out of D.C., directions around and through the perimeter, and various possible dangers to law enforcement officers. And the w uh, sorry, the FBI command post personnel replied that they had, quote, seen some of the tunnel reporting earlier in the week. So very credible reporting, including things at this point that are going on internally to the FBI. No reason for the FBI not to trust itself. And yet, 
still on the job late that evening for some reason, the FBI sends an internal email in which they say, quote, it's estimated that 30,000 participants will march toward the Capitol, which will coincide with the 1 o'clock EST scheduled congressional meetings to certify the Electoral College votes. Obvious concerns remain if counter-protests ensue and opposing ideologies clash. Again, why not mention storming the Capitol? They've got information saying they're going to storm the Capitol. They've got information internal to the FBI saying, oh, gee, let's, you know, <laughs> um, let's get the addresses of politicians. And they note that, quote, the uh, Metro PD shut down their command post, that that's a good sign that the crowds have diminished and that they remain peaceful. No, that's not a sign of anything other than people wanting to go home. And so we get to January 6th itself. Um, at 8.31 a.m., there is uh, a message from the FBI to senior management, including WFO, with complaints and threats received by the NTOC related to the election and electoral vote certification. So this is a very credible report, and this is to the most senior leadership, um, including the WFO, right? And presumably going up to Bowditch and maybe Ray, you know, I don't know, is, is Ray checking his emails at this point? What's he doing? The report doesn't even mention this guy. Um, it mentions that, quote, threats of violence related to the march of January in D.C., and, quote, an individual who plans to participate in criminal activity with the Proud Boys on January 6th, end quote. So that's an email from the FBI to other people in the FBI. And less than half an hour later, uh, DHS emailed an update on the planned demonstrations to federal agencies, including FBI Deputy Director Bowditch. The email stated, quote, as of 8 o'clock Eastern Time, approximately 10,000 strong, 10,000 plus in line, waiting to go through the main magnetometers for POTUS ellipsite on Constitution Avenue. Some members of the crowd are wearing ballistic helmets, body armor, and carrying radio equipment and military-grade backpacks. No civil disobedience at this time. As if that's the most important thing, right? You just said they've got gear. They've got bags. What are in the bags? Guns. Guns are in the bags. You've got Michael Sherwin, who I have raised some red flags about before, uh, sending out email to other partners in law enforcement saying, quote, We anticipate a spike in activity today, tonight, but all good at the moment. And then forwards it to Jeffrey Rosen, stating, Sir, FYI below, all good for now. There's nothing that's all good about any of this. There's giant red flags. It's like they got a cancer diagnosis, but they're like, you know what, I'm fine. So, again, uh, they picked their scapegoats, but before this, I mean, this really gives me more questions about, let's say, Richard Donahue, or he had questions about uh, Michael Sherwin and Christopher Ray, right? So they, they singled out a couple of people, but really this implicates the entire command structure of the FBI. And what's different than at a DHS is that these are people who are still in place, right? Christopher Ray is still in place. Chad Wolf is gone. We don't have to worry about Chad Wolf until... Uh, you know, the next Republican administration when he will be uh, appointed uh, 
or something. Um, nonetheless, you know, this is highly problematic. Alright, move on to the next section, which is DHS and INA. So, again, that was that's the section for the intelligence that was received by the FBI. And it's pretty damning, and it shows that the FBI got a whole bunch of stuff and didn't do anything about it. What do we think we're going to find at DHS INA? It's something very similar. And their section begins on page 48. But it's clear, they, you know, they singled out certain people in the FBI for basically scapegoating without looking at Director Ray. Jennifer Moore, in particular, Jill Sanborn, um, Matthew Alcoke, staff at various points, Stephen D'Antonio, uh, Jeff Rosen, and Richard Donahue um, both come in at different points in time for, you know, I think little jabs, right? But again, um, they don't, you know, looking at people in the DOJ, right? But not looking at the head of the agency. They don't ever really seriously look at the director of the FBI. And the same is true of the DHS. So we get to the DHS INA section. Um, but again, They've got a series of people they scapegoat. I uh, might as well go through the list here. Stephanie Dovich, um, who uh, said, quote, that she assumed that the USCP already had the intel. Melissa Smyslova, an official who began her career at DHS um, after looking at North Korea, um, but then is working at DHS looking at uh, U.S. persons, right? And I, I want to suggest that perhaps... Uh, these things aren't readily transferable. That if you are someone who's looking at uh, intel on North Korea, um, maybe the United States threat environment is somewhat different. I understand that you know she had uh, quite a bit of time at DHS. Uh, nonetheless, you know, it, it's weird. Like, for example, in political science, we have different groups of people who, even though we don't use this word very much anymore, uh, do what's called area studies, right? So if you're specialized in North Korea, I don't know that necessarily you're also going to understand the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters um, or, or Trumpism, right? So I don't understand how you have this sort of fluid wall between people who are looking at international stuff versus domestic stuff. I mean, it's hard enough for people who research domestic and violent, violent extremism to do it. Um, it is a bit of a stretch to think that someone who has an international focus on one 1950s era uh, Luddite sort of Stalinist version of a, a Soviet state um, is going to be able to understand you know, the 21st century uh, here in the United States in the information age. And one Joseph Maher, right? And they don't mention Joseph Maher by name, um, but also, again, you know, Need to look at Chad Wolf, Ken Cuccinelli, Cash Patel. Uh, you know, single them out a little bit more than than they really are. Um, they they really again tend to focus on sort of like these mid level officials and not focusing at the head of the agency. Um, that being said, as I as I went through the list, that's a pretty convincing list. 
that's a pretty convincing list of things that, you know, the FBI had and they didn't do anything about any of it. And so we then get to DHS. So the DHS timeline begins on December 21st, 2020. And on December 21st, an analyst provided an INA senior analyst with a briefing on intelligence and thereafter worked with an open source intelligence staff to identify the threats, which included, quote, vague operational plans for a violent attack, which would occur on or about January 6th. So bang on, right? You got the Trump will be wild tweet on December 18th. Things are happening online. Internally, DHS INA says, hey, there's operational plans for a violent attack, which would occur on or about January 6th. That's plenty of lead time, right? For them to get that information out. So that's the first thing. And it's not even a threat. It's something that they got in the form of a tip. FBI stuff, that's mainly about tips. DHS is actively doing open source research and they're finding stuff. And what happens with it? Well, I don't know. Nobody seems to know. Uh, second one, uh, on December 21st, DC HIMSA Fusion Center sent out an open source information, quote, regarding threats to Congress and election officials, groups strategizing to avoid arrest in DC and discussions bringing guns into DC on January 6th. And the same day, they also got a tip, quote, about an individual who threatened to shoot and kill protesters at the upcoming rallies related to the presidential election, end quote. So DC Fusion Center, again, apparently doing good work. And uh, apparently, I believe DC, uh, DC MPD are consuming their products, but where it's going anywhere else, nobody knows. On December 28th, on, this will be the third item on the list. And INA received the December 28th DC Fusion Center report that also went to the FBI and included a parlor post from a user planning an attack on January 6th in Washington, D.C. On December 29th, INA instructed its intelligence collectors to search for threat information regarding January 6th. And over the course of the next five days, the analysts, quote, identified comments referencing using weapons and targeting law enforcement and the U.S. Capitol building. They also noted some individuals claimed they would sacrifice themselves to the, in the ensuing violence. On December 30th, INA collectors noted a social media user who advocates for marching on D.C. with guns if President Trump is not declared the winner on January 6th. And online discussions of organizing in Virginia, then driving to D.C. armed together as the police military won't be able to stop thousands of armed patriots. So in other words, the same information that the FBI was receiving uh, and again, didn't do anything about on January 2nd, um, there's information from INA collectors who became aware of individuals online sharing a map of the U.S. Capitol building, and the collectors messaged each other saying, quote, it feels like people are actually going to try and hurt politicians. January 6th is going to be crazy. And there were, quote, lots of discussions about people coming armed to D.C. And that night, on the night of January 6th, sorry, January 2nd, the DHS distributed an invitation to a DHS sit room, quote, in preparation for the potential violence, noting, quote, there exists potential for violence between opposing protest groups this coming week. 
specifically on January 5th and 6th, mainly in D.C., but possible at other locations in the U.S. And again, that's not what the threats were talking about. That's not what people were talking about. They were talking about storming the Capitol. They are talking about attacking law enforcement. They are talking about coming armed and obstructing an official proceeding. They weren't talking about, you know, let's go get Antifa. Well, okay, maybe some of them were, right? But again, they chose this. So they decided that this is going to be the main threat. No matter how many times people are putting up hashtag 1776 rebel, hashtag Occupy Capitals, that's not what they're interested in finding. And so guess what? That's not what they find. On January 3rd, 2021, uh, INA collectors sent messages to each other saying, quote, people are talking about storming Congress, bringing guns, willing to die for the cause, hanging politicians with ropes, end quote. And, yeah, no accident. Hey, everything that they, they say happened, happened, right? Well, they didn't hang anybody, but they did build a gallows. All right, so we get to January 4th, and they cite the DHS OIG report. And there's a lot of information contained in that. Although, again, I don't really trust uh, Kafari as far as I can throw him. Um... An INA collector learned of social media posts from, quote, a group of individuals in D.C. that sounded like, quote, they were going to battle. And skipping ahead, later that day, at the direction of INA leadership, INA collectors, quote, identified seven observed or partially observed indicators of potential violence associated specifically with the protests planned for January 6th, such as calls for protesters to become, to come armed. Also on that day, there was a uh, conference call uh, with representatives from fusion centers from around the country, and Donnell Harvin, uh, the executive director of the, director of the D.C. Fusion Center, noted that he was so concerned about the intelligence he was seeing that he reached out to the president of the National Fusion Center Association, Mike Cena, who then convened a conference call on January 4th for fusion centers around the country to discuss the intelligence they were seeing ahead of the events at D.C. and to identify threats. Cena invited 80 fusion centers to, to the call and approximately 300 participants joined the call, in which Harvin states he was, quote, floored by, noting there was, quote, a lot of interest after he had initially expected only five or six or seven states to join the call. So again, people in fusion centers on the other side of the country knew what was going on uh, but apparently Chad Wolf and um, Christopher Ray and Richard Donahue and everybody else just kind of not all that concerned. They're worried about traffic and counter-protester on protester violence rather than the threat that everybody else in the country, including many of my listeners, will have seen. All right. The, January 5th, there's specific information. Um about a member of a proud, the Proud Boys who, quote, staked out parking lots of federal buildings that required searches or entry to determine how to bring firearms to January 6th events in D.C. In addition, the individual noted that he was driving through North Dakota armed with enough ammo to, quote, win a small war. Uh, it might be interesting to actually, like, uh, look at known Proud Boys, probably from the Pacific Northwest area who wound up uh, getting charged you know, could this be Ethan Nordine? I don't know. Anyway, um, that day, DHS also received an email from the D.C. Fusion Center 
that also went to the uh, FBI regarding a website called Red State Secession. So there's overlap, right? They're getting the same intelligence that the FBI is. And again, we don't know what's happening with it. On January 6th, where, where is DHS? Quote, as January 6th began at DHS, the department continued to downplay the threat of violence. That is one of the reasons why I much prefer this report to Appendix 1, despite my criticisms about it not focusing on Christopher Ray and Chad Wolf, Nonetheless, occasionally it just, it just straight up tells the truth. DHS continued to downplay the threat of violence. And you can see that, right? In the documentary evidence, uh, the, the DHS continuous updates, they're like, Kenosha this, Kenosha that, demonstrator, counter demonstrator. Nonetheless, no specific threats. That's everything they were saying, and they just literally, <coughs> the report tells the truth here. And this is, you know, pretty strong language, uh, considering, compared to what we've seen, let's, for example, in Appendix uh, appendix 1. And they, they note that um, after noting half a dozen arrests made by MPD the night before they related to protests, DHS gave an overview of the permitted demonstrations planned for January 6th. Despite the numerous tips and open source information INA received about violent threats, the summary gave no indication of the potential for violence. Two hours later, a senior watch officer at DHS National Operations Center sent an email to federal agencies and included the intelligence about, quote, members of the crowd carrying ballistic helmets, body armor, and radio equipment and military-grade backpacks. Nonetheless, it said, quote, there is no indication of civil disobedience for the protests. So DHS, despite their charge, was very much stood down. On 52, there's a chart with a sort of a summary timeline. It's not all comprehensive. But all in all, when you look at well, what's been collected... I find the FBI actually had more stuff and they had, you know, they apparently collected and retained more stuff and it was from some very credible sources, especially, you know, the counterterrorism division. They got very good information. What they did with it is unclear. But again, the proof is in the pudding, right? Uh, you know, there wasn't adequate preparedness for January 6th. And that's what's contained largely in the next section that I, I will... Uh, not spend a lot of time on. Um, section 6, FBI and INA failed to issue sufficient warnings about the potential for violence on January 6th. Now, we know this, right? Um, I think the meat of the report is actually in Section 5. But again, they pick out different people uh, who they single out to blame. Who? Well, one of them, of course, again, it's our old friend, Jill Sanborn. Quote, as former assistant director of the counterterrorism division at FBI, Jill Sanborn testified before the committee. Throughout 2020, the FBI authored approximately 12 intelligence products for our federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial law enforcement partners, disseminating trends we saw in threat reporting and criminal activity involving domestic violent extremism. Over the last year, we observed activity that led us to assess there was potential for increased violent extremist activity at lawful protests taking place in communities across the United States. End quote. However, the, the report notes that um, 
they only generated two documents. And it was the night before, and it wasn't from WFO. It was from Norfolk and uh, New Orleans. So only two, right? So the FBI is claiming credit for 12 intelligence products. But in the end, only two of those products referenced January 6th. And they were, in fact, issued the night before. They then uh, take it on themselves to analyze some of these. And one thing that they find significant, uh, the committee staff found that, quote, the SIR, that is to say the thing that was put out by Norfolk, Norfolk, did not note the multitude of other warnings and intelligence that WFO had received to that point, as described above in Section 5. Most notably, the Norf Norfolk SIR did not note that individuals were calling for protesters to storm the Capitol. Despite evidence the committee obtained that demonstrates the FBI was aware of intelligence and warnings regarding calls to storm the Capitol. Also, uh, this intelligence product contained a note to their law enforcement partners to, quote, not to take no action based on this raw reporting without prior coordination with the FBI. Well, what good is it then? What good is it? Who cares? Right? Again, if you've done this the night before and you're telling people, well, don't take action, what do you think is going to come of it? Nothing, right? And oddly enough, it, this is, winds up getting sent to Virginia, but not Maryland. Why not Maryland? Maryland is right there. And they also find that this uh, report from Norfolk, quote, did not reach the leaders of key agencies involved in preparing for January 6th. Chief Sun testified that although a USCP officer on the FBI's JTTF received the SIR, it did not make its way to the USCP chain of command to Sund before January 6th. Sanborn and FBI Director Christopher Wray testified that they were not briefed on the SIR until after the January 6th attack. Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, then Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, and then Acting U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Michael Sherwin, also each reported that they did not see the SIR before January 6th. But again, I'm sorry, there were plenty of other indications. And moreover, I mean, there's there's actual stuff from, this is one of the rare times Ray's name is mentioned, by the way, but there's, you know, stuff that these people, these very same people have said, that they saw, you know, was concerning. So they are the ones who are actually in a position to do something. Norfolk's not really in, in a position to do that. They put it out there and, uh, you know, it was too late, obviously. But again, uh, the people who were in a position of responsibility to be proactive and actually do something to prepare in uh, January 6th, for January 6th, weren't checking their emails, right? And this stuff didn't begin on the 5th of January. Uh, they were getting information from December 20th onward. But we do have a little bit of uh, a hint at reform on page 57. The FBI now requires field offices to post all SIRs to Justice Connect. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, nobody reads Justice Connect, but okay, sure. Th th this, again, is just another circular file. Um, if you work for the Department of Justice or you know someone who does, ask them how many emails they get on a daily basis. Um, you know, this is not something. Uh, these are people who, you know, just apparently, again, if you're white, it's all right. They are not really focused on 
right-wing violence. They only focus on left-wing violence. They then move on to the IRR from the New Orleans field office that concerns a QRF that was re-established in Virginia. And this was broadly distributed. Uh, it went to various FBI field offices, a BATF, DHS, DOJ, National Security Agency, the Department of State, and uh, also DC uh, Fusion Center, who forwarded it to MPD on January the 5th. And once again, they seem to single out Jennifer Moore, and they say, quote, uh, they're quoting Moore here, at that moment, we're just trying to push information out as absolutely fast and quick as I can, as accurately as possible, and with the widest dissemination possible. Moore said the, the FBI did not share with their, did share with their partners that there was a potential for violence in D.C., but that it was not worth putting out that in a written product, summarizing the volume of non-actionable threats. Quote, I can write a product, but that's a useless product. From where I sat on that day, a joint intelligence bulletin with the intelligence that I had and that our partners had shared with me would not have made a difference. End quote. Well, as much as I say they're scapegoating more, looks like here they, they, they kind of have some reason. Uh, you had one job, Jennifer Moore, and it looks like you didn't do it. And so here the report squarely blames the Washington field office. Quote, the WFO chose not to issue such a product based on the multitude of intelligence it had obtained in advance of January 6th, as described in Section 5. Chief Sun testified, quote, During the meeting, no entity, including the FBI, provided any intelligence indicating there would be a coordinated violent attack on the United States Capitol by thousands of well-equipped armed insurrectionists, and that, quote, none of the intelligence we received predicted what had actually occurred. End quote. Now, of course, uh, Chi Sund was also asleep at the wheel here, but again, he's recalling a January 5th meeting, and um, there's nothing to indicate that this isn't true, right? There is absolutely, it's absolutely consistent with all the actions with regard to uh, DHS and the FBI that they wouldn't be uh, telling the Capitol Police anything at this meeting because they were, you know, they were, they were doing things internally but they weren't necessarily communicating this to, in this case, the most relevant agency. So they also have a pull quote here from uh, Donnell Harvin, um, which is interesting because they actually they locate the pull quote next to the actual quote, and it just it, it's kind of odd the, the way they did that. Um, but it says, quote, With all the information and intelligence we had about a lot of people talking about coming to the District of Columbia to, to commit violence, if they didn't write some kind of internal document that had the look and feel of a threat assessment, then there's something wrong with that agency. Full stop. And that makes sense. So, you know, again, we've seen how much the FBI had. They didn't come up with any kind of document to really give the entire threat picture. I mean, essentially, there's no externally directed communications, and they downplayed the threat in internal communications, talking about traffic problems rather than the threat of violence. And there's no threat assessment. There's no written threat assessment that they disseminate. And again, that's what these people are supposed to do, right? Why do they exist? If, you know, why are we wasting our tax dollars? If, you know, they're just going to go buck wild in the summer of 2020 
just arresting people and violating people's civil rights and liberties. But when it comes to the Trumpist threat and various paramilitary gangs, they just sit around and do absolutely nothing. It is disgusting. And again, their assessment uh, is on December 30th, according to FBI internal emails, downplayed the threat. Quote, regarding social media, there's been chatter on 4chan about the event, particularly how militias should attend. However, with each person who wants to attend, one person states it's a bad idea and or a trap. Basically, a lot of talk about wanting to go, but not a lot of talk about actually going. There's been slightly less internet traffic regarding protest chatter and very little visibility on the counter-protest chatter. There's been nothing seen on social media to corroborate any mass armed protest discussion. End quote. That, as we've seen, is basically a lie, right? So, they're, you know, again, all the, the gist of all of this is, is that when it came down to it, the intelligence was there, but then they decided um, there's been nothing seen on social media to corroborate any massed armed protest discussion. And this email is attributed to Washington field office staff and is sent to Jennifer Moore on December 30th, 2020. So when I say they blame, you know, this is a list of the scapegoats. One of the scapegoats is just, just staff. Just staff wrote this email, sent it to Jennifer Moore and said, yeah, there's nothing on, on social media about, uh, you know, armed, uh, armed mass protests. Why are you talking about armed mass protests then? Right? This is December 30th. Why are you even talking about this? This is utter nonsense. You have actually seen stuff on armed mass protests. Why are you saying you haven't seen stuff on armed mass protests? Where does this idea even come from in this email that you're talking about armed mass protests? It's because you know there's going to be an armed mass protest. That's why. So there were not just red flags in advance of January 6th that the FBI had. They were essentially artisanally crafted red flags. These are red flags crafted with great care and love by people who actually knew what they're doing. And yet again, nothing happens. So the FBI dismissed individual threats as not credible and failed to fully assess the totality of the threat landscape. Right. So they've got all these individual threats and they're still reporting things like, quote, no credible threats at this time. So they dismissed all the individual threats, but then when it came to the whole picture, there's no credible threats at this time. And uh, in their internal email briefings, um, this one from January 6th, there's, quote, uncorroborated, but I have information that Antifa will be wearing Trump clothes with hats backwards and Proud Boys will be wearing all black. Who Who is sending this? Where are they getting this? They're getting this from the CHSs. This is, they're using information from the Proud Boys to report on what Antifa is going to be doing. I mean, absolutely nuts. They're reporting that Antifa is going to be there based on information from the people who are actually going to be there and who are planning the attack. So again, you know, either lying or absolutely incompetent. And this is utterly inconsistent, by the way, with uh, what Jennifer Moore said. Well, again, I know I've, I said, I've suggested that she's been set up as a scapegoat to protect Ray, but, you know, 
the committee, uh, the staff does cite some pretty, some evidence here that suggests that, you know, either she's not very good at her job or something else is going on. Uh, so when it came to the cert unrest hashtag, Moore testified, quote, so we're constantly looking at the landscape all along and we're always briefing what the threat picture is and looking at the totality of it. I can assure you we were looking at the hashtags and we were putting it all together. No, you weren't. Obviously you weren't. If you weren't actually doing that, there would have been a higher level of preparedness. Similarly, uh, Stephen D'Antonio, I never know how to pronounce that name, and Tuano, the assistant director in charge of the Washington Field Office, told reporters that in the lead-up to January 6th, the FBI had assessed that, quote, there was no indication that there was going to be anything other than First Amendment protected activity, end quote. So again, summer of 2020, oh, this is terrible. These people are horrible. January 6th, uh, this is First Amendment protected activity. Again, quoting from, uh, they cite more from Moore's House Select Committee interview. She said that, quote, the WFO did not have specific credible information that the Capitol was going to be stormed at all that day and that there was, quote, no unaddressed credible threat and further explained, quote, there was some rhetoric out there that we should, you know, storm the Capitol, but it wasn't like, let's go storm the Capitol. We are going to storm the Capitol. Wait a minute. What? Okay, I'm, I'm going to read that again. There was some rhetoric out there that we should, you know, storm the Capitol, but it wasn't like, let's go storm the Capitol. We are going to storm the Capitol. That is a distinction without a difference, right? They were saying we should go storm the Capitol, that we are going to storm the Capitol. I mean, that is absolutely absurd. So, you know, as much as I've suggested she's a scapegoat, you know, they've done a pretty good job running this stuff up there. And they summarize Moore's behavior thusly, quote, Moore has since stated that one of the lessons learned from January 6th is that FBI needs to change how it uses the terms credible threat and actionable threat to communicate more clearly when it is not anticipating violence at a specific time and place. But regardless of the terminology used, FBI failed to communicate the breadth and gravity of the threats it was seeing. On page 67, uh, the document addresses how the FBI, quote, wrongly focused on the potential for violence between protesters on January 6th rather than the threat to the Capitol. Uh, there's an internal email from the Washington Field Office that stated, quote, we will likely have the same posture for January 6th as at the two first MAGA event events. Right now, the Proud Boys attendance is expected to be significantly lower than at past events. The daily events beginning on uh, December 28th are expected to be no more than 50 attendees and will no need additional resources outside of our partners' resources. Yeah, that obviously that's not my inserting errors in there. They're literally that garbled. Um, in any event, so again, what's the source for this? Are they relying on their own confidential human informants? Are they relying on, you know, their informants within the Proud Boys? You know, the Proud Boys told them, no, no, we're only have 50 people. There's going to be fewer at this one. Yeah, we're going to come, but, you know, it's going to be no big deal. Where are they getting this? 
because everything else online showed that, in fact, it was going to be a big deal. Um, again, although they direct a lot of attention at um, Jennifer Moore, uh, they should also, again, they, they don't single them out, but um, there are some quotations here from uh, Deputy Director Bowditch that are kind of odd. So he gave a briefing on the morning of January 4th to acting Attorney General Rosen and Richard Donahue regarding January 6th. And while they recognized the potential for violence, they felt, quote, relief that counter-protesters were not expected to attend in large numbers as there would likely not be a situation that concerned us so much where we would have two different political factions fighting in the streets. So, failure of imagination. Uh, Bowditch just isn't particularly bright, incapable of reading, apparently, doesn't check his email, and didn't realize that when they were saying occupy the Capitol, they meant occupy the Capitol. And so in 68, you can see Richard Donahue and uh, Michael Sherwin both buy into this protester versus counter-protester narrative, even though there's nothing to suggest that there are actually going to be any counter-demonstrators at all. And there's lots to suggest that they're going to storm and occupy the Capitol. Here's a quote from Sherwin. Quote, we were shocked that there was this void of counter-protesters because that's where we expected the action to happen. And when it didn't happen there, we were kind of almost surprised. And maybe in some ways, that's maybe why this whole flow went toward the Capitol. But we were definitely keyed in on protest, counter-protester violence, especially from what we learned in December with some of the groups you already referenced. That was a critical emphasis. The protest on institutions was not discounted, but maybe it had a secondary role. No, in fact, it had no role whatsoever. And uh, this actually makes me understand a little bit about what Sherwin actually did that day. He shows up at the Ellipse, he takes a look around, he sees people with guns, uh, he sees people with lower receivers, uh, sorry, uppers, and no lowers, and it's like, this is fine, whatever. That's, check the bags, check the bags, they've got the whole gun, they just broke it apart. Um... Yeah, and, and then he goes home. He leaves. Well, he doesn't go home. Uh, I believe he actually goes to the um, command center. But nonetheless, he was looking for the protester, counter-protester stuff. Didn't see counter-demonstrators? Like, it's all good. He saw firsthand that they're wearing helmets and body armor, that they've got zip ties and stuff. You don't bring backpacks to a political rally. Nonetheless, he's like, that's eh, fine, you know. Um, so, you know, Michael Sherwin, I know he's not in the FBI, right? I mean, he's just the, uh, you know, at the time acting, uh, attorney general, act, sorry, uh, acting AUSA for DC. Nonetheless, um, rather dense, not very imaginative. That is the most, uh, charitable interpretation I can have for this. And then they, they talk, they address more, a little bit more. Um, Jennifer Moore, when asked about D'Antuano's statement to the press that the FBI did not have intelligence suggesting that the pro-Trump rally would be anything more than a lawful demonstration, Moore stated, quote, We were on ready standby in the event that this became violent. How it might become violent? We did not see the storming of the Capitol. We were, again, going off of what we had seen in the past, which was the protester on counter-protest violence, damage to property, that type of stuff. And the report then notes, I'm not going to go into it, but uh, that this is contradicted by the fact that the FBI and the DOJ were tracking threats against the Capitol itself. 
Um, and they talk about uh, the various tips, right, where they're encouraging supporters to march to the Capitol. Trump supporters discussed storming the Capitol and invading the Capitol building and calls to storm the Capitol. So, again, you know, they had all this stuff, and yet they focused on what, I don't know. I, I have no idea. They're just like, well, this happened in December, therefore the same thing's going to happen in January. Again, uh, these are people who, I don't, uh, there, there's, yeah, like charitably, they're just not very good at their jobs. They then focus a little bit on Jeff Rosen. Good. Let's look at Jeff Rosen. Uh, because, yeah. Now, again, he's got some things going on. Jeff Clark is trying to take his job. Nonetheless, Jeff Rosen also didn't do any, you know, really, everything he could. Eh, um, you know, probably, let's say, as much as could have been done. So, when asked if it would have made a difference whether the FBI had issued a joint intelligence bulletin, Rosen reiterated, quote, The risks of violence and the need to prepare were apparent. However, Rosen admitted that, quote, in hindsight, no one contemplated, quote, how bad that afternoon turned out to be. However, this is contradicted by the threats and intelligence DOJ and FBI had received, including from outside researchers who warned about the increasing danger as described in Section 5. And I want to add here, if anyone at this point knew or had reason to know what lengths and extremes Donald Trump would go to to remain in office, it ought to have been Jeffrey Rosen. That ought to have been a klaxon call. That is an artisanally crafted red flag that Rosen should have seen. Out of anybody, he should have seen that because he's gone through this experience where Trump is trying to replace him with Jeff Clark. And he had to get every attorney in the White House and the Department of Justice to threaten to resign. So if you don't think he's going to work with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters, and Ali Alexander, and Alex Jones, and everybody else to storm the Capitol, Jeff Rosen, you know, again, ah, I mean, maybe he was a little preoccupied, you know, but a failure of the imagination. Similarly, they go page 71, they talk about uh, INA. And that, quote, INA downplayed the threat and internal procedural breakdowns prevented INA from effectively fulfilling its mission. And also, they, they, they had products that talked about the broader DVA threat nationwide, but did not disseminate reports specific to January 6th, even though they had information about Proud Boys who were staking out parking lots of federal buildings. And they didn't share these reports with agency partners until January 8th. And even then, they didn't even share it with the USCP two days after the Capitol attack. And it's the same story. So you go ahead to page 75. DHS OIG reported that uh, intelligence collectors from INA said that they, quote, did not think storming the U.S. Capitol was possible, and therefore they dismissed this specific type of threat as hyperbole, end quote. And again, why is that? If I were, let's say, a Muslim terrorist or a Muslim, not even a terrorist, I just jokingly talked about, like, hijacking a plane, is that going to be hyperbole? Now, again, uh, there's nothing inherent to the Capitol that makes it unstormable. These kinds of attacks happen. Benghazi, right? 
I mean, it is possible for a mob to overwhelm a building. You know, uh, talk to the Bastille, right? July 14th, Bastille Day. Storm buildings, government buildings can be stormed. In fact, oh gee, they referenced that in the documents that they decided not to read. So, INA, obviously also problematic. Um, they had, quote, established a surge team of approximately 20 personnel to enhance information sharing, analytic production, and raw intelligence collection. However, documents obtained by the committee call into question the effectiveness of those efforts. And again, that's putting it mildly. So, and I realize that I'm not going to get through the, the whole report here, um, but, you know, there are a, a number of things that surface in it that I think are useful. Um, for one, the way they categorize people, right? So they talk about known threat actors. Were they categorizing Trumpists as known threat actors? Arguably, the existence of someone like the MAGA bomber, Sayok, you should look at these people as, non, as known threat actors. BLM and Antifa, you're probably crediting them as known threat actors. Trumpists, they just decide that it's hyperbole, right? So by now, at least, one might imagine that, you, you know, they should count Trumpists as DVEs. Trumpists are DVEs, and they are terrorists, and they are known threat actors. And there's also the issues regarding what happened at the FBI and DHS INA. And a lot of this goes back to the whistleblower, uh, Brian Murphy. And this occurs uh, at the end of the summer in 2020. And in fact, arguably, again, um, does a pretty good job of explaining what happened. Now, the narrative that Murphy constructed was utterly consistent with what actually happened in on January 6th. So Murphy was saying that, you know, in fact, there was a lot of improper things going toward, you know, directing the attention toward BLM and Antifa in the summer of 2020. That was improper. And oddly enough, the response to this whistleblower was to then say, okay, we can't do anything about Trumpists. Utterly bizarre. Um, but, you know, look at what Brian Murphy had to say about George Floyd protests and the summer of 2020, and then compare that to the response on January 6th. They used Murphy's whistleblowing on the activities in the federal government directed at the George Floyd protests to justify standing down against the Trumpists, when arguably this is just more of the same behavior that Murphy was blowing the whistle on. Final point I'd like to make regards uh, the appointment of a lead agency. This is actually a narrative that was covered as well in the final report of the committee. Um, there's conflicting reports about who is going to be, be the lady agency. Now, ultimately, again, as I said before, it didn't really matter on the day. On the day, the lead agency wound up being the MPD and the D.C. government. Thank you for your service. But DOJ didn't want the job. And it makes sense. And actually, uh, there's a section in the report where they basically say it's a good thing that DOJ did, was not assigned the lead agency because, in point of fact, um, it could have been Richard Clark. It could have been Richard Clark who was in charge of the response on, uh, sorry, Richard Clark, Jeff, Jeff Clark 
on uh, January 6th. And that, I thought, was actually a very good point. So there's a very good reason why Jeff Rosen didn't want to be um, in charge, didn't want to actually have the job of being the lead agency on January 6th. So that part actually made sense to me in a way that uh, it hadn't before. You know, DOJ didn't want to be the lead agency. Um, meanwhile, people at, at DOD, they didn't want to be the lead agency because they were afraid that Trump was going to enact something like the Insurrection Act, which is part of the reason why they didn't wind up ultimately deploying the National Guard. Although don't look for anything on that in here because it, it's not. That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at the FBI and uh, INA. And then for some reason, they've thrown this lead agency question in there uh, at the very end. But ultimately, there was no lead agency. And again, U.S. Secret Service, if they had been the lead agency, would that have been good? Yeah, I'm not sure. So ultimately, and there is a point in Millie's transcript, by the way, where he says, well, I did the math and I could tell that uh, Metro Police, they had the manpower we needed. So uh, best, you know, and he didn't say why, right? But, you know, optics, let's not mobilize uh, the National Guard. Uh, again, the fear seemed to be that Trump would somehow gain control of the National Guard and deploy them to stage some kind of coup. But in all of this, no one ever talked to General Walker. I don't think General Walker would have obeyed a lawful order, nor do I think he would have simply allowed himself to be replaced. So that part of the narrative is a little hinky, but nonetheless, you can kind of understand why General Milley was opposed to having the DOD be the lead agency. Um, you know, and there, again, there's all kinds of reasons regarding the summer of 2020 and how he felt that he had been used by Trump and some of the stuff surrounding the Insurrection Act and all the, you know, the, the living secretaries of defense letter, all that stuff. They were very alert to all these things. Nonetheless, the whole thing would have been uh, very much helped if General Milley had actually talked to General Walker at some point on January 6th. Now, they end this with uh, Section C, uh, beginning on page 99, which I thought is an interesting section, where uh, basically they talk about the responses of all the different agencies. And this section is entitled, After January 6th, Agency Officials Blamed Each Other for Failures. And it's true. And this part reads, like, it's proof of the aphorism that failure is an orphan. Um, so... Uh, just from my notes here, the Department of Justice blamed the U.S. Capitol Police. Uh, they basically said that it was the fault of the Capitol Police. Uh, here's Richard Donahue's testimony. Why they failed to do it, I don't know. I was as surprised, if not more surprised than anyone, that they allowed people to get into that building. But I said this was on the small side for a D.C. protest. And as a result, I'm uncertain as to why the Capitol Police were not able to secure the building that day. To this day, I don't understand why that happened. So both Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue wind up blaming the U.S. Capitol Police. Donahue said, quote, Everyone knew that the Capitol was at risk. Everyone knew that there were going to be thousands of angry protesters showing up at the Capitol. Certainly no one anticipated this type of breach, but you planned for the worst, and the Capitol Police should have planned for the worst, and they should have been prepared to defend the perimeter. Okay, sure. Again, utter, utterly mind-blowing. Uh, this is all hands on deck. You don't get, this is not a game of hot potato. 
you don't get to say, we don't want to be the lead agency and then blame the Capitol Police for not doing enough. You know, how about instead of just SWAT teams from uh, D.C. and Baltimore, you get in SWAT teams from the rest of the country and you deploy them quickly, not, you know, just sort of wait around the way that, I mean, okay, they, they were there pretty quickly, but nonetheless, you know, they could have had more readiness than what they actually had. And the FBI blamed other intelligence agencies, local law enforcement, and the USCP. And there's one quote in here that is just astounding to me. Former FBI Deputy Director Baldich also placed blame on local law enforcement, stating, quote, The Metro PD are typically very, very good at crowd control. I have seen it time and time again. But in this case, I think law enforcement was overwhelmed, certainly at the Capitol. That's clear, indeed, to say that. It takes some balls to lie this brazenly. This was the only agency that really mounted an effective response on January 6th. And for Bowditch to say this about the MPD just puts the finger back on him because he was in a position to do something to actually make sure that they were ready, and yet he didn't. And so it's up to local law enforcement who did one hell of a job in fighting the rioters and actually getting them out of the, the, the building, out of the Capitol, they turned the tide. And it is incomprehensible to me that he is blaming the guys who showed up on bikes without riot gear for what happened at the Capitol when God only knows what he was doing. So I don't see, you know, I didn't see him grabbing a baton and headed out to the West Terrace of the Capitol. So big fuck you to Valdich. Department of Homeland Security, who did they blame? Why, uh, they blamed the U.S. Capitol Police. This is actually kind of remarkable because it's one of the few times that Chad Wolf's name actually appears in this and they actually respond to his bullshit appropriately. So, uh, here's what Wolf had to say. Quote, I think there was a major breakdown with the Capitol Police at the end of the day. From DHS's perspective, we prepared for the worst. We brought in assets. You know, we had more than enough people at different buildings. Yes, we had to pay them overtime. And yes, we had to do a bunch of stuff that, you know, don't want to do from a fiscal standpoint. But you've got to be aware of the threat. I don't know why that didn't occur for the Capitol. So he wants credit for the fact that they had uh, adequate staffing at DHS facilities. Uh, Mind-blowing. Okay. Did you then take those people and send them to the Capitol? That analysis, again, here's here's what the, the uh, minority majority uh, staff have to say that analysis diminishes the threat to the Capitol on January 6th as demonstrated by intelligence INA had obtained yet failed to report to partners such as USCP. Moreover, Wolf's claims that DHS prepared for the worst is incompatible with INA's failures to disseminate the threats it had obtained to USCP and other partners. Absolutely true, right? So, uh, you know, really, FBI and uh, the DHS INA, they're responsible for g gathering this intelligence. USCP is mainly a consumer of intelligence. It's not their primary mission. And so you, here you have uh, two agencies whose job it is to actually provide the intelligence. They didn't provide the intelligence, and yet they're pointing the finger at an agency that is much, much smaller and had to deal with a, a crowd of, like, 30,000 people, you know, some maybe 5,000 of whom decided to attack the Capitol. 
Then there's also uh, yet another quote from uh, Cuccinelli, King Cuccinelli, who also pointed the finger at the Capitol Police. Quote, U.S. Capitol Police are the first line of defense, and they are more than capable on a good day to manage. Doesn't mean by themselves, but to manage a situation like this. They were woefully unprepared, to an astonishing degree, to someone who had previously been closely associated with law enforcement. I was astonished, truly astonished. We didn't have anything specific. Nobody did. But we were better prepared to manage our responsibilities and to flex to help others and theirs than they were. It's not a competition, but, I mean, they got an F. They got an F. So, yeah. All right, big fuck you to Cuccinelli as well. I mean, absolutely incomprehensible that anyone at the FBI or DHS is pointing fingers at the Capitol Police or the Metropolitan Police Department. Were there problems? Were there some issues? Sure. But again, their responsibility was to do the job on the day. And they were not given the information that they needed to be able to do the job on the day in order to be able to effectively stand up. There should have been klaxons going off. There should have been sirens. Instead, they weren't even doing threat assessments. They weren't doing the basic functions at, stipulated by Congress. They were not performing the vital functions of their agencies. And that is a failure. We have chucked billions of dollars down this rabbit hole, particularly at DHS. And what are we getting out of it as taxpayers? Taxpayer value. Not a lot on January 6th when it comes to uh, abusing the rights of people involved in the George Floyd protests in summer of 2020. They did a heck of a job. But when it came down to protecting the capital of the United States, the place where the people who actually signed the checks that authorized the billions of dollars that go to the DHS and the FBI, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So for people like Wolf and Cuccinelli uh, and Baldich to then lay the blame at the feet of the MPD and the Capitol Police is some of the most disgusting things that I've seen uh, in, in the course of looking at January 6th. That being said, Cuccinelli also has more blame to give up. That's right, not just at USCP and MPD, uh, but also looking at the Capitol, uh, sorry, looking at the DOD. Um, he stated that the DOD, quote, demonstrated an extraordinary lack of understanding of civilian law enforcement. In particular, Cuccinelli criticized former Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy, who Cuccinelli stated, quote, seemed to be in charge of freaking out. That was his job, and he did it very thoroughly. Had no ever-loving idea of what he was doing. Yeah, okay, I'm going to agree with that, except for the fact that he went to uh, Muriel Bowser's office to beg her not to deploy the National Guard. So it's beyond he was in charge of freaking out. He was, if anything actively obstructing um, the, the actual work that's going on. Again, Bowser didn't have any authority to deploy the National Guard, but she was going to go on a, a television and say that her request for National Guard assistance had been denied by McCarthy, and McCarthy went to uh, her command center to say, oh, that's not true. I'm, I'm authorizing it. Just give us some time, and I'll appear with you at your press conference. Just please don't say that I've, you know, yeah, okay. Why was he freaking out? Because Ryan McCarthy's a liar, all right? Ryan McCarthy stonewalled the, uh, the D.C. National Guard. That's why he was freaking out.
Right. So I think I'm going to leave it at there. But um, if you do get a chance, uh, do read it. It has some interesting insights. You will be very frustrated. You will find that, in fact, yes, you know, it's as bad as you thought. Um, all And a lot of this stuff is stuff that I'd seen before, but the committee staff did a very good job of organizing it, putting it together. There are new interviews uh, with the committee staff that you haven't seen before, so that's interesting. There's some stuff in there that's going to make you mad, like I said. Um, you know, it's unconscionable that you've got people like, uh, you know, people at the FBI and DHS criticizing the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department because they did far more on January 6th than the agencies who were supposed to warn them about the possibility of political violence on January 6th did in the run-up to January 6th. All right. Thank you so much. And hopefully at some point uh, we will wind up hearing from a certain grand jury in D.C., and um, we'll see what happens with that.